Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Very few of us will ever be Elon Musk in creating Tesla and SpaceX, but maybe someone's going to listen to this podcast or read my book, and one day they may not even remember it, but it'll be one of the 10 reasons they decided to do something, went on to change the world. And if people are thinking about clean energy, particularly small-scale things, and they want to become innovators in the space, I wrote the book because it might give them a little more confidence and we were thinking about there's so many things to do, I don't know where to start. Maybe there's some ideas here. And that's why I wrote it. It's been the funnest adventure of anything I've ever done. But as my son Ben says, but dad, maybe someone will read it, maybe just one. And they're gonna say, I'm gonna do something different. I'm gonna take a chance on something I wouldn't have done. Then it'll all have been worth it. Hey there, solar warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, welcome back, Solar Warrior, to this long-form Thursday episode. And today, as you probably no doubt noticed, is long-form indeed. I have a fantastic interview coming your way, and we trimmed about a third of the three-hour conversation down to about two hours. So I hope you'll dig in and enjoy. Trust me, you're about to learn some things. I want to thank you so, so much, as always, for lending me your ears and also the only non-renewable resource that you've got, your time, wherever you are. Whatever it is that you would otherwise be doing, I'm so grateful that you're here now and I promise you are about to get a ton of value for the investment you've chosen. Thanks for giving us a chance to earn your attention. There are few folks over the course of the Suncast canon of episodes who have had as profound an impact on my own personal thinking and growth as today's guest, Bill Nussie. For those who are unfamiliar with Bill and his background, I won't bore you with the details unnecessarily. You can hear the details in episode 125, where I go deep on a typical Suncast style interview with Bill, all about how he got the idea to begin his journey to decarbonization of the electric grid and where that led him. Bill is a high-tech executive, investor, mentor, and advisor who has taken companies public, sold a company to Big Blue, IBM, and has access to some of the most incredible minds and thinking you can imagine. And when Bill decided about four and a half years ago that he wanted to really lean in and understand the energy transition in the United States, he leaned into a tool that had already informed his understanding of a previous industry, and that is the process and methodology of writing a book. Well, friends, I have read that book. It's called Freeing Energy, and it's the culmination of a four-year project that today, Bill Nussie and I are gonna dig deeply, deeply into. I would encourage you to go ahead and press play and know that you're gonna pause and come back unless you have a full two hours to dedicate to this. But even if you don't, you're going to get a ton of value. We're gonna learn about Bill's connection of his time 
in high tech and in particular at IBM and the revelations that he had about what was happening in the energy sector. We're going to learn who this book particularly is written for, what chapters you should be thinking about, in particular, you solar warriors, as we cater a lot of the conversation to the listeners of Suncast. If you're a new listener to Suncast, well, you'll still get a ton out of this book. And I would encourage you to go check it out as it goes on sale this coming Tuesday, December 7th. A handful of highlights may be helpful, but know that in a conversation that spanned three hours, I really would not do justice to try and sum the conversation up. There are resources galore that we will direct you to, but most importantly, if you want to dig deeper beyond the book that Bill has written, I would encourage you to check out his podcast by the same name, Freeing Energy. You'll learn who's responsible for the greatest machine of all time. You'll learn the historical investment in infrastructure and what it means in the scope of what we're trying to do in energy transition. Importantly, we'll feature the most important term that Bill has come across and imbued in every page of the book Freeing Energy, and that is the concept of local energy, how it's designed, why that segmentation is necessary, how much will it play a role in the overall energy transition, and why local energy is the future. We dig into a lot of Bill's insights, both from his career and from his four years compiling this book. It's a lot to digest, and that's why there's two hours. Sit back and enjoy. If you like these kinds of episodes, you are in for a treat, especially if you've never been on Suncast before, because every week we break down these kinds of stories to show you how to grow your career in clean energy. There are more than 400 additional founder stories and startup advice to help you on your clean tech journey over at mysuncast.com. For now, I cannot wait for you to tune in and tune up your skills as this is a really powerful conversation here on Suncast. Okay, Solar Warriors, if you are longtime listeners, <clears throat> then you'll recognize the voice of today's guest. If you have not had a chance yet, I would really encourage you, because you will be so compelled by this man's story today and you'll want to know more about him, I've got you covered. That's in episode 125, back in the archives of Suncast, now a couple of years ago. Bill Nussie, good to have you back on Suncast. It's awesome, man. Thank you. I remember that first interview. I couldn't believe I was getting uh, in front of the famous uh, Nico Johnson, <laughs> and it was a fun fun conversation. We've had an infinite number since then. Oh, my goodness. It, if the archives could hold all the things we've discussed, but I've had a chance to watch a little project of yours evolve. <laughs> Over, over the ensuing time. And in fact, when we were introduced by now Suncast royalty, Mr. Andy Klump, I think he has the most appearances on the show at this point. It was under the auspice, Nico, you got to meet this guy. He's writing a book. He is a seasoned tech veteran and uh, you're really going to like him. How, how, do you know, how do you know Andy? Andy and I go as far back as you can go. He, uh, oh, you were born in the same house? Yes, professionally. I should say professionally. <laughs> I do feel like his brother sometimes. So I ran a public company called IXL, and every year I would bring in somebody to be my chief of staff. And typically I'd go to the, the hallowed universities and business schools and get somebody young. And my assistant one day said, there's someone from our Chicago office calling that he wants to be your chief of staff. I was like, wow, that's just out of the blue. And so, yeah, it's so bold. Okay. That's so Andy. And I was talking to Andy and he says, yeah, I want to move from Chicago, come to Atlanta where the headquarters were and be your chief of staff. And 
I, I loved the guy and he joined as our chief of staff for a while. And I ended up leaving the company to join Silver Pop, which is the company I did afterwards. And mm. Andy came over there for a while. So we've worked together at two companies. Yeah. Andy, for the last 20 years, has been in an industry that is disrupting another powerful industry, upsetting the apple cart for the utility industry broadly uh, around the world. And here in the United States, is no different. And there are a lot of folks who are trying to figure out where do we fit in this sector? Is this a real sector? We'll get into that. And if so, what are the opportunities to do something now before the tech guys get in and, and ruin it for everybody? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. I'm really honored to have a, an opportunity to sit down with you and talk about a book that you've written that in many ways seeks to address both the contextual history and the prognostication for how disruption and innovation can be harnessed for the clean energy sector. And from the vantage point of someone who, from a very early age, has seen how technology can both enable and disrupt whole industries, not just segments of industries. You wrote a book that was the muse for your podcast, it was the fabric of a quilt that you have been working on for several years, the title of which is Freeing Energy, which is the same as your podcast. And the subtitle is How Innovators Are Using Local-Scale Solar and Batteries to Disrupt the Global Energy Industry. From the outside in. Yet, by all accounts, including your own, you have no energy industry experience. And you're not a journalist. Definitely not. Not an academic. Nope. What gave you the confidence that you could write a book in an industry that you've never been a part of? Well, it's actually the reverse. Mm. How do you get to know an industry you knew nothing about? Mm. And uh, roll back to 2016, one of my close friends, Mike, calls me late at night at uh, 8 p.m. I was sure it was some of, one of our mutual friends was sick or something. And he says, I figured out what you need to do. <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> what do I need to do? And he says, you've been talking about this energy stuff. And I was at IBM at the time. Mm. And he said, we're getting tired of hearing about it. And it's time for you to do something. I said, well, that's the problem. I, I'm not sure what to do. He says, that's why I'm calling you. He said, when you started at Silverpop, which was a marketing tech company I sold to IBM, he said, you knew all about marketing. I said, no, you know, I didn't. I, I didn't know anything about it. And he goes, remind me how you learned. And I said, I wrote a book. Mm. And he said, that's why I'm calling you with an expletive. And it was the biggest idea I'd ever had in my life. And I felt like my brain was literally at 110 degrees. And I ended up leaving IBM, giving my notice 36 hours later. It's probably the most passionate. I stayed for three months to wind out wow. all the projects we were working on, but it was the biggest idea I ever had. And the beauty of it is that you can call up the smartest people in the world and ask them the dumbest questions yeah. and build a network all at the same time. And it has worked Wonderfully, it's one of the ways I met you. And I have met, I've interviewed 320 people on six continents. I've wow. climbed to the top of wind turbines, ladder straight up 300 feet. I've sat in the headquarter offices of Jinko and other solar companies. I've been to factories, mud huts in Africa. Yeah. It has been the adventure of a lifetime. And I'm so grateful that Mike gave me that idea. And then, of course, once the idea was out, a lot of my other close friends and family, like, you got to do this. Okay, I'll spend a year, write a book. I love it. That was four years ago. Four and a half years ago. Yeah. You, I recall. In the book, you said that there was a moment where, quote, it all clicked. And I think that several listening will maybe identify with that, but the, the majority of us have heard folks say, yeah, it clicked. And, and maybe we have no context around what that looks or feels or sounds like. At the time, you were 
one of the top 100 executives at IBM, Silverpop had been acquired. You had no lack of opportunity to grow, no lack of, of income. You had a successful exit from previous uh, companies. What did it, what clicked? What did you feel in that moment that compelled you now, now is the time for me to move beyond this fantastic opportunity I've got here at IBM and try something new again? There was really two big, maybe three big moments. The first was we were sitting around a table like this with IBM executives and we had all the phones and the press people and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and everybody, the Financial Times were all writing about how my company had been acquired. Yeah. It was a wonderful moment. And I was so overwhelmed. I thought, I want to remember this. So I stepped out when there was a break and I sat in a small conference room with myself and about 10 or 15 seconds, I'm like, holy cow, look, I just made a ton of money yeah. and I'm gonna be well-respected because I sold to IBM and I'm gonna be working at IBM for a while. And then it hit me that, I don't know from where, it just hit me like a lightning bolt, but there are all these people I've read about and met who have devoted their lives to a cause. And these people don't have the financial resources or the network or the comfort or the experience that I do, and yet they're devoting themselves to it. How could I do any less? And that was really the first thing that set me off on a journey that, staying directly in tech as I had done for 25 years previously was the way to go. And that was mm -hmm. some other things along the way. And then the last one was when I was at IBM and we were looking at all the industries where IBM might use IoT, had a team of folks working on it. And we looked at every imaginable industry, but and they were just going by, the teams were writing things up and there was this one, electricity. And I said, I, I, a million years ago, I got an electrical engineering degree. Let, let me look at that. I'm curious where that's going. And we were shocked we were all shocked how undigitized mm. electricity is. It's the whole electric grid is we all depend on this powering what we're doing here. Actually, we're powered by solar right now, but generally powered by the grid. It's just a gigantic single analog circuit. It, I couldn't believe it. So at first I was like, this is a huge opportunity for digitization and mm -hmm. that caught my interest. But then I got more and more interested. There's this thing called solar. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's this thing where you can take the sun and turn it directly into electricity. And what I was... And, and there was these trends where it's getting cheaper and cheaper like every other technology I'd ever seen. And I thought to myself, there's a really good chance that solar is gonna become the least expensive way to generate electricity in human history. Yeah. And I said, now that's interesting because if that happens, this isn't just a digitization story, this is an absolute disruption. Mm. And sure enough, it's already happened, but that was what triggered me into clean energy was this is gonna be a disruption just like we saw with personal computing, we saw with digital marketing, we saw with mobile phones, technology is gonna disrupt the industry and I had to be part of it. Yeah. What did your wife say to you when you came home and said, I've got it? I have been tremendously fortunate to have somehow convinced this phenomenal woman to spend her life with me. Yeah. And uh, so she, I would say that it wasn't quite an instantaneous moment and she was really the Sherpa to help me get through it. Yeah. And she said, listen, we have a little bit of comfort right now and why don't you do something that's gonna really charge your batteries. It's gonna make yeah. you wanna get out of bed every morning and make a difference. And she helped me find some of the specifics because well, the big idea was a click. The Because I'm an operator at heart as a business person, yeah. there was hundreds of small check boxes and that was mm. a, its own journey. Yeah. And so she you, helped me with it. You mentioned going to TED. One of the things that I marvel at, as someone who by relative standards is considered to have access, I'm considered to be able to open doors and folks call me up all the time and say, you've got a great network and wow, you've got a chance to interview this person or that person. 
I remember the first time I sat down with you fighting back the bitter pill of names that I'd never get to have a chance on my show to interview. Like Jim Rogers, may rest in peace for obvious reasons. I won't get to interview him, but I marvel at the level of access that you gained quickly in our industry. And I want to know if there's a sense that if there's a process that you utilized to get that level of access. And then I have a couple follow-on questions because I think, first of all, a lot of folks are thinking, how do I get into this industry? And this book is going to be an incredible resource for them. Thank you. Secondly, they invariably reach out to me and say, where do I start? And they perceive that as a thought leader, I'm one of those like folks that they should know. How did you wrap your head around the question, who's on my short list? What does my long list look like? It took me a while to figure out why I was getting as many phone calls returned in an industry that no one knew me as mm. I was used to getting yeah. in an industry where I had built some gravitas. Right. And someone told me, I forget who it was. I looked at your resume and I'm trying to figure out why you're choosing this industry. <laughs> <laughs> I, honestly, Nico, that was the... He's crazy, and so I want to see what he's thinking. I get a sense that I wish that I could talk to Jim about it, because I'd love to ask him those questions, Jim Rogers. We had a mutual friend, yeah, and he recommended me as someone who would be a good use of Jim's time. And Jim was sure. at a point in his career where he was, he was trying to pay forward and yeah. give back. Yeah, and if, for those who are unfamiliar, Jim Rogers, formerly the CEO of Duke Energy, Energy. and just one of the folks that was a true believer and yes. solar technology. Another, Amory Lovins. Amory, the founder of Rocky Mountain Institute, now RMI. Uh, I bring them up because I wonder if there are any particular things that you would recommend to folks as they're thinking, maybe as podcasters or journalists, but also just as business leaders and entrepreneurs who are thinking about expanding their network. You've built a framework that has worked for you to quickly assess the first principles of the industry and to access the key thinkers in the industry. Are there any key fundamental aspects of how you break that down? Early on, I was asking people to introduce me to their network and it was, it felt awkward. I'm, I, uh -huh. I don't like to ask for favors mm -hmm. and I would, could tell I was getting some silent resistance. People were being polite and not telling me. And then somebody pulled me aside actually and said, Bill, you're missing the point here. The only reason I'm going to make this introduction is because you have something you haven't yet told me that you're going to help this person with yeah. by talking to them. And so I think initially I was a curiosity. I was a novelty. And some yeah. people took meetings with me and I'm a strategist at heart. I think I ask good questions, especially to people who are strategically minded like Amory. And, but beyond that, I had to change my perception about what is it can I what is it that I can do for you? And because I've been on 30 some boards of directors yeah. and have been a venture capitalist and built businesses, some one of the things that I do with people is let's talk about your business and what are your challenges. And it, yeah. typically it's team building stuff and revenue growth and things I have some experience in. And so I trade that for interesting but people want to talk to me to get that um, perspective yeah. for me. And I want to hear their perspectives either for the book or just because I enjoy learning. Yeah. I feel a lot of folks stumble across my podcast, your podcast, you get outreach like I do, of folks who they want to shortcut the path to knowing through podcasts, which I love. That's why I created this resource. And, and I feel sometimes I find that folks are focused on who to know rather than what to know. How, given the incredible breadth of history of the energy sector, how do you distill the specific framework and steps that you're going to utilize to come up to speed quickly on in an industry and learn where there are opportunities. Can you talk to me a bit about how you thought about that and how that ultimately informed the structure of the book? 
That's a great question, man. And while I was at Greylock, which is a venture firm I worked at for a while, I looked at 3,000 business plans, literally, and met hundreds of entrepreneurs. And one of the skills that helps in venture capital is to be able to assess the structure and opportunities and risks within an industry or a segment that you aren't familiar with. And how do you do that? And so having spent years there, I had a little muscle memory on how to go after it. But in general, the question is the question that all strategists, corporate strategists, the McKinsey's of the world, it's the, how do you take a complex an infinitely complex nuanced situation and break it into pieces that are bite-sized and can be actioned. And you do that through a, I think a heuristic process, if you don't mind my using that word, yeah. but it's both, it, you feel your way through it, right? It's a bit, it's more art than science. And you talk to people, you try to get the most credible people you can find. And some people who are brilliant will give you their perspectives, but it doesn't make sense to you. And someone who may not be as demonstrably brilliant, but they can explain it to you in a way that makes sense to you. You start to form this model. Yeah. And then sometimes there's a hole in the model. So how can I learn that? Mm. And, and I can read, but the really wild part about the book is I, I haven't really thought about it until you asked the question. There were weeks where I lived in spreadsheets. I lived in mm. an EIA database. I have pulled down million, tens, hundreds of millions of data points and analyzed them with statistical anal analysis packages and spreadsheets. And I have a massive database that I created for all the, the data that was relevant to local energy from the EIA and IEA and others. And then the other time I'm talking to people. And then the other time I'm researching science papers and trying to see what this word means because I don't know what it means. Someone once said of me that they thought my superpower was curiosity. And I've always reflected on <laughs> that. And I think I just really went where my curiosity took me. But I'll, I'll wrap up the answer with something that my wife would be nodding vigorously for, that the problem with a curiosity-driven approach is it has to be contained with the reality of what are you gonna do with it? So yeah. I chase down a lot of, there's versions of my book out there that are really even another 50,000 words longer. Yeah. And they're just sitting on the cutting room floor because they were too broad. And so in the last two years, I had to really narrow the topic down to what it is now, which is a book for innovators for how to navigate the clean energy industry in the transition. I wanna spend a lot of time here in what your vision for the journey the reader goes through is and who the ideal reader is, what the key concepts are they're gonna unpack. But let's start with who you believe ultimately should read the book. Man, that was a big part of the journey because as, yeah. as the book was very early, people were saying, who are you writing it for? Yeah. And that was both a practical, tactical question, who's your audience? Yeah. And it was also an emotional question because as a writer, I can't even think of myself as a writer, but as a person who was writing, I was trying to picture who's gonna read it. And that changed over the time. And it was about a year and a half ago, COVID was getting underway and I had a lot of time where I could focus that I wouldn't normally have had. It became really clear. And so the dedication to the book, and it's mentioned several times within the book, is that this is for the thousands and thousands of innovators who have not yet joined this industry, but we desperately need you yeah. to join this, one of the most important movements in human history. Yeah. And the good news the book tries to get across is that you can do so much more than the important things you're doing like voting and advocating and writing letters. Yeah. Because today that's the only knob that people think they can turn to affect the transition away from fossil fuels. The entire book's about things that you can do, not necessarily as an individual, but as an innovator. Is somebody who wants to be the first person in their neighborhood to have solar. Mm -hmm. Is somebody who wants to teach a class or write a letter to a legislator that, that may have a perspective that legislator hasn't heard before. But there's also things like building companies and investing or joining mm -hmm. a company, joining a, a nonprofit advocacy group. The, yeah. This is now the time 
for individual actions to start taking place. And two years ago, it was too early. Now is the time, and that's what the book's about. It's written for all those people that are thinking, Mm -hmm. can I do something and how would I do it? Yeah, thank you. I, I think that by and large, we have two categories of people, those who are thinking about getting in the industry and those who are already in the industry, usually mid to senior level folks that are trying to conceptualize what it looks like for them to move up or move out and start their own business, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs. And I have a heart for folks in the oil and gas industry and for folks in the tech industry who, for the most part, well-meaning, have entered into a career that is either a dead end emotionally or morally or financially because the industry is going to lose their base and the fossil fuel industry just won't have investment from their previous investment base. And they're nonetheless talented and well-meaning and and intelligent with those folks in mind. And some of them are employee-minded and some of them are are entrepreneur-minded. I think that a lot of them are finding our show because they're entrepreneur-minded. If you could recommend, I don't know, maybe three chapters of the book for those folks and they're just skimmers, where would you contextually want folks to spend time in the book. And then I want to get into our audience, what chapters you think are going to resonate for the Suncast audience. I think someone coming from the traditional energy industry, Mm -hmm. many that I have had the privilege of meeting are still set in a worldview that is just outdated. Yeah. And so there's a couple of chapters in the book, Technologies to Fuels, and then The Battle for Public Opinion. Mm-hmm. And I have seen some jaws drop when people, even people in our industry mm-hmm. read it about, first of all, the, the solar is so far and above the best source of energy and so many first principles ways. It's completely different than wind. It's completely different than biomass. And it's certainly different than fossil fuels. And one of my favorite stats, for example, is that there's in the month, this month that we're recording, this, there will be more sunshine hitting the earth in terms of energy than mm-hmm. all the reserves of all the fossil fuels and all the uranium. Yeah. So in one month, the sun is going to generate more energy at a, you know, a bazillion miles away and hitting the earth. This earth will have more energy than all reserves put together. So the degree to which that's available inspires people to realize that while we, hey, there's probably a role for biomass, there's definitely a role for wind, but solar is in a unique position amongst all their energy sources. And by the way, it's the only one that's gonna be continuing to plummet in cost, continuing to plummet. So it's not just bigger and better, it's also gonna be half and soon a quarter the cost of any other way to generate electricity. So that would be the folks who come from a worldview that they wanna have it challenged, Mm -hmm. but people that have accepted that, hey, solar is the, the runaway train, it's working, it's the best bet. I would say, how do you apply that? Is There's other chapters in the book, the chapters on patterns of innovation. If you're a strategic thinker like me, you want to understand the first principles. But the part that I think most people who are thinking, what's my entry point? The chapter on billion-dollar disruptions. Yeah. And if you really know the industry, there won't be too many surprises there, but hopefully there'll be some surprises about why and what. Like, why? what role will hydrogen play and why? And also... There's a lot of people, particularly earlier in their careers, that are really trying to connect their hearts with their jobs. And so one area where clean energy plays a role that we don't, you and I don't think about every day, but for outside the US and low-income parts of the world, and Jim Rogers, actually, who you mentioned a moment Mm -hmm. ago, really put my head and heart around this. He was devoted to this in Mm -hmm. the final years of his life. He has a book called Lighting Africa. And uh, I subsequently went there a few times. And so also in the chapter on disruptions is how small-scale energy systems are disrupting the almost non-existent grids in the poorer parts of the world. Yeah, And for some people, that's actually the most motivating thing to do. 
Yeah. Now it's actually freeing in many profound ways. The main reason I use freeing, by the way, has there's lots of, I play with it in the book, mm. but the main thing for me is freeing it from uh, 100-year-old monopoly laws. Yeah. And we, uh, by the way, we need monopolies. We need utilities. I want to be absolutely clear that yeah. not only do they have a role, but we need them to survive and thrive through the transition that's inevitably going to happen to the industry and to them. But the laws are so over-the-top lockdown monopolies that yeah. it just doesn't allow for anything remotely like competition. And you, people will point to California. Listen, we opened up competition in California. Enron came in, it wrecked mm -hmm. it. California, the state almost went bankrupt. And that's the problem. That was zero to 50, right? So it's no competition, tons of competition. Yeah. I, I say to people that when, you, when they talk about that kind of competition, it's saying, Nico, you need to get in shape. And so your answer was, okay, why well, don't I get a complete heart, lung, and spleen transplant and that, see if that helps. So that's what they did, right? Say, Nico, just eat better, exercise a little more. You can do these small things that are obvious without changing the entire competitive landscape of the industry that are safer and more incremental. But unfortunately, it requires substantial mindset changes. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book so that people could realize that this is survivable. It's amazing business opportunity, including mm. for the incumbents. But I suspect the incumbents will not be the biggest winners just because that's the bitter pill of being an incumbent. Yeah, one of my hopes for your book is that it gets in the hands of every utility executive. I hope so. That it gets in the hands of every middle and executive manager in the fossil fuel industry as a way to understand where we've come from and where we're going. And there are lots of books that have attempted to do this. I think that you did it in an elegant way because you do look at first principles of why it matters. How do we get where we are? Let's talk about that. One of my early reasons for advocating for the Freeing Energy podcast, which small PSA, if you haven't listened to the Freeing Energy podcast, I, I highly recommend that you subscribe to it, was that I'd never met someone that you point to rightly as the godfather of the grid, right? Someone I know that you uh, have an affinity for and, and his story. And I thought about a question that is an inversion of, of a statement you made in the book. Would you tell us who's responsible for the greatest machine of all time? All the way back, it was Thomas Edison, but it wasn't just him. Mm -hmm. And the key point I make in the book, and I didn't know any of this, by the way. Yeah. I had read some Edison stories in, in my last many years, and I'd read about the current wars, the AC versus mm -hmm. DC, and those are interesting fun. There's the movie called yeah. The Current Wars, which is great, but that to me wasn't remotely the most interesting story. So to me, the, the two things that are seminal, first of all, Edison didn't invent a light bulb. Mm -hmm. You kind of know that, right? But what he really did was invent a light bulb that lasted longer than anybody else's. Right. But I say in the book that while that is important, the most important invention Edison gifted the world with was the idea of a centralized grid, sharing resources like, a, in that case, a coal generator, right. and lighting up a whole square mile of Manhattan with mm -hmm. one switch of a large coal generator, and it fundamentally changed the economics of electricity. Yeah. Fundamentally. Previously, the only people that had electricity, like J.P. Morgan, he had his own coal plant in his own house. And so Edison just, and what the really key point that people miss about innovation, and I talk about this a lot in the book, is that it wasn't that he invented a light bulb. It was, he didn't invent nearly anything that made the grid work. He pulled it all together. Right. And I love to, and I love to point to Tesla's Model S, Elon Musk's contemporary company. There wasn't a single part in a Model S that you, the BMW and Ford didn't have access to. Yeah. He didn't invent some warp engine that no one else had. He just took all the existing parts and put them in, together in a way in his teams that no one had ever done and created arguably the best car ever mm. made. And 
Edison did the same thing. He put yeah. together parts that were available to everybody and he put them together in a second in a better way than anyone had ever thought about. And so there's too much focus on the latest science breakthrough and the latest gizmo that's going to do something. And the people that will win in this coming decade or two are the people that take the existing parts and put them together in really creative ways. Right. And so that was the first big thing that made the grid possible. And the second one, which gets almost no credit, was the invention of the regulated monopoly. Right. And it's, it is so unique in the annals of business history and its success for going on 100 years unchallenged in any way is testament to the brilliance of the design. Although with things like solar and batteries, it's wildly outdated. But without a regulated monopoly, it's highly unlikely that the United States and most of the developed world would have electricity at the affordability and safety that we take for granted. And that invention changed the world. And he doesn't get a lot of credit for it. In fact, in many annals, he is a bad guy in the history of electricity. Yeah. And I had never heard of him. I was at dinner with Jim Rogers and he says, have you ever heard of Sam Insel? And I said, no. And he said, this is the guy you need to study. This is yeah. the guy that no one pays attention to. And he, we are all here because of him. And some people consider him a hero. Some people consider him a villain. Whatever you consider him to be, we wouldn't be here without him. And his story is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. And go forward, whatever he created has survived the test of time. But it needs to be changed now. Mm -hmm. And I think he would vociferously agree, by the way. I hate to put myself in his incredible shoes, mm. but I believe he would say, listen, dudes, it's time for at least some minor tweaks. As I mentioned in the beginning, you've been a part of minor tweaks and major tweaks to the way that industry thinks. Your first business was providing real-time graphics on a processor that you'd bought in your teens. But despite that, and maybe because of that deep, credible tech experience and business building cachet. I think it's important to bring in the the doubting Thomases, right? Because I think it, in this regulated, this regulated utility environment, and even the coal industry and the fossil fuel industry at large, possibly even the tech industry, there are a lot of folks who are naysayers. And I think that everybody's got an Uncle Ken in their life. <laughs> You're referring to the, my story in my book, yes. <laughs> when you first decided that you were going to take this journey, someone who, by all accounts, should have been um, an avid fan and supporter w was not. And I think his reaction is actually not all that uncommon and certainly will be for those of you who are listening who are thinking about leaving a well-paid career to join the clean energy revolution and, and, and think about climate tech. I'd like to hear about your thoughts around some of the answers that you maybe then and maybe over time have given Uncle Ken about what you saw sitting at IBM, about the nature of tech disruption and what that could mean for the utility industry as technologies like solar come along. Jim Rogers said a hundred things to me that dinner, mm -hmm. but the one that left me, changed me and became one of the driving forces of the book. He said, it's about time for the utility industry to become a technology business again. Mm -hmm. Two big points there. It, once upon a time when Nikola Tesla and Westinghouse and Edison were creating the initial grid, it was a tech industry by all the measures we would use today. Right. And it was time for it to become again. And it, there's few people more qualified to make a statement like that. So it yeah. obviously struck me deeply. And I'm not even sure he realized the depth to which technology is disruptive but I've had this incredible ringside seat for years on different technology disruptions. 
And when I realized that was happening in clean energy, really that's the thing that pulled me into it more than almost anything else was yeah. this is going to be huge. And it's the largest industry that's ever been disrupted by a lot. And the disruptions from technology occur because the rate of change of technology exceeds what the incumbent industry leaders are able to adapt to. And you saw that happen with the internet. You saw that happen with personal computers. You saw that happen with digital marketing. You saw that happen with media. You saw that happen with mobile phones. Things that are built around broadly defined technology, yeah. which usually involves what I call in the book, economies of volume, things you can mass produce. Mm -hmm. And therefore you move through what they call the learning curve at an accelerated rate. So great story. I was in Africa meeting with the minister of energy of a well-known African country. And we were talking about what, I was part of a group, but I was sitting next to her and we're talking about how much realistically should they balance the grid distribution to their, to their citizens versus the small scale energy systems. And the minister, we're talking about the economics and, and, and this country had been very intentional about this. It was mm. impressive. They were thoughtful about it. They weren't reacting to it. And the minister says, wait a minute. Last time we were talking about this a few years ago, these small home systems cost $1,000. Now you're telling me they cost $200. I, I, and it just struck me that that is the single best example of, of a technology disruption because the, the, the fundamental thing, cost, was changing so quickly that no one could keep up with what does it mean. Right. And what's particularly challenging for the utility industry is that they have never had to deal with fast-changing costs. Even right. when AT&T was ultimately broken apart, they understood, they invented the transistor, right? They invented radar. They understood technology, and they still couldn't keep up with what the industry and the MCIs were doing. But the utility industry has no experience with something that's going to be X today, one-half X in three years yeah. and quarter X in six years. Yeah. And so they have no models. Yeah. And that's gonna be why this is going to be one of the most challenging disruptions. Yeah. Even the way that pricing is created for consumers can't follow the model. It's the reason that we had such high penetration in states like Arizona and California before the regulators could wrap their heads around, wait, 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 wait. Like, this is messing up our rate case that we got approved five years ago. We gotta think about 10 years from now, you're absolutely right. The scale of investment for what many are referring to as climate tech, but we'll look at like just clean energy and, and infrastructure around clean energy is unprecedented. You map out in the book from 1956 to 1995, invested $550 billion in the US highway system. Can you give a quick timeline between that and Energy Secretary Granum's grand vision for the investment that we might see in clean energy from here to 2030? When I talk to people who are thinking about this industry or they're asking me, hey man, why aren't you doing crypto or AI or something <laughs> that a software person like yourself should do? And the answer I always come back to is this is the one of, if not the biggest business opportunity in the history of humanity. And Amory Lovins, who I quote throughout the book, has a really wonderful Amory-esque way of describing it, mm -hmm. but it's a once in a civilization, it's a once in a species transition. And he said it many different ways, but all of them get at the magnitude of this. And so many people are familiar with the wealth created and the change, the societal change that the broad tech industry, whether it's the internet or mobile phones or Facebook or Amazon, all grouped together, all of those companies over the last 25 years have taken in a total amount of venture investing at a trillion dollars the last yeah. 25 years. Wow. And so that's an enormous amount of money. And when I tell people that the smallest estimate for the next 25 years in clean energy of investment is 15 trillion, and if the politicians actually 
decide to do something about this is more likely to be 25 to $30 trillion in the next 25 years, it's, there's just no precedent. It's orders of magnitude larger than anything we've ever tried to do as a species. And the great thing is, because it's so politicized and because it, governments talk about it and they have giant cop conferences and all these things, which are critical, mm. but people put it in the same bucket climate investment, they put in the same bucket as healthcare and childcare and education and the military, mm -hmm. which are things where the government spends an enormous amount of money and they hope to make a better country, a better society. Right. And they hope in the decades or years and decades that follow that mm -hmm. higher education will create a higher benefit for citizens. And that's, so when clean energy falls into that, it gets, it loses the most important point. This isn't a make the country better. This is, I'm going to put in a dollar and we yeah. get a dollar 20 back. This that's isn't right. like, anything else the government talks about doing. Yeah. This is something that actually was Uncle Ken's core argument, wasn't it? Yes. He, he pointed to what many want to use as the whipping post of the clean tech industry, Solyndra, and the $500 million loan guarantee, which um, not just the government, but investors lost out on. And he, he quotes something, I'll, I'll use a different term for what you were just referring to, in healthcare, in education, it's rightly characterized as a handout because we want to lift people out of poverty. We want right. to provide, improve their lives. We want to provide a social uh, safety net. Uh, we want to improve their lives in a way that individually they can't possibly do. And while I would argue it's worthwhile, like we did in the last hundred years, invest in the personal safety net of having electricity in every home to make sure that we can reduce the number of, of deaths due to cold like we saw in Texas this, this past winter. You characterize it in the book, as you just said, an investment, not a handout. It has a direct economic return. And people talk about the Solyndra, which is part of the loan program office, which is now run by our friend Jigger Shaw. That fund is, according to what I've read, has returned more than the average low-risk fund has returned to the government, to the citizens of the U.S. That fund was the reason Tesla survived in its early days. Right. That fund is the sole reason that the Georgia is still building the nuclear power plant, because while they lost $500 million on Solyndra, the government did, their bet on the Vogel power plant is over $10 billion. Yeah. And uh, knock on wood, it'll work out and be successful, whereas the one, it's twin in South Carolina, didn't, it was yeah. shut down and cost $10 billion. But that fund has done a lot of things that aren't just about solar and aren't just about handouts. It's intended to have a return, and I'm optimistic that will be one of the many things the U.S. government does to push this industry forward. But these are not handouts. Uh, some things are, but for the most part, these are investments that return direct financial dividends to the U.S. Yeah. Uh, US citizens. Yeah, in many ways, it's, I'm from Durham. The triangle RTP is the, most people know this, it's the second largest billionaire or like uh, billion dollar or unicorn sector of venture investing in Didn't the world outside of Sand Hill Road. Did not know that. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's a bit like comparing, saying that, oh, venture capitalists shouldn't invest in healthcare because they're Ranos, right? If we can be fooled right. by Elizabeth Holmes, we can be fooled by anybody. Spot on, Nico. And I have a whole chapter in my book, which was, it's called The Battle for Public Opinion. And I, this is where I did hundreds of spreadsheets and I climbed through data from all over the world and sourced it. I have over 400 uh, citations in the yeah. book. And if you actually go to some of those citations, it goes to the website where there's another 50 citations. So it's like thousands of sources that yeah. I cite. And I want to make a point so that if you don't believe it or, you're, or you want to share it, but you don't think your audience is going to believe you, yeah. you have as much supported data as you may see for mm. anything. Because there's so much I read about, particularly from environmental groups, where they make sweeping statements and they don't cite their sources. And then you go to the other extreme where you've got 
academic papers, which have so many sources and are written in a language that it's unnavigable. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to find, and hopefully it's not as common as I think it should be, to find a navigable but highly cited source for statements about what does it really cost to make solar versus coal versus mm. nuclear? Yeah. What is the waste left over when solar panels were tired? That's a mm. big one that people keep bringing up. But if we go too much solar, we're gonna be overflowing our landfills with solar panels when yeah. they're retired. If we retired every single solar panel we put in place in 2020, it would be one-tenth the waste that comes from tele- from smartphones and TVs and computers. Wait, so can you say that again? So the category of e-waste, yeah. which is a tiny portion of overall municipal waste, yeah. If we retired all the solar panels in 2020 and we compared it to the e-waste of that year, it'd be one-tenth. We need Matt Farrell to do a video on this, on the undecided video. Because yes. there's so much FUD right now about yeah. the, the, which we all can get, along, get on board with. We do need an end-of-life plan, but a lot of folks use FUD. And I think that your book is great for just debasing a lot of the FUD that they want to use against our industry as, an, as a catalyst for an economic growth like we've never been able to yeah. harness. Your book is 420 something pages. Yes. We could, it could, could have been 600, <laughs> yeah. could have been yes. 600. And by the way- I wish it was 200. And, and by the way, like your blog is, and goes into deeper stories on Sam Ansel. Like your podcast goes into the backstories of the folks that you interviewed, which yes. is a, as a compendium, it is a remarkable body of work. Thank you. We're just getting started by the way. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. I wish that we had the time to go through every chapter the key concepts really center around a few things that I want to make sure that we do cover. Local energy, the, that this is a, co- a, co- a concept around technologies, not fuels. You talk about economies of volume. You go into something that I think would be really interesting for us to extract and talk very, very specifically about. I think it's a model that you created called Five Orders. The, and then you mentioned not just the what you call BLEO, big local energy opportunities, but specifically in chapters five and six, you go into with the Five Orders how one can think about disruption and innovation. So let's take a crack at the very first one. Your core thesis is that this is all really at its base about local energy. Can you help me understand what is local energy and why did, and how did you come to that as your main thesis for the book? There were tears and laying awake at night in that journey, because as I got into the book a year into it, it became increasingly apparent that the power and intransigence of the existing utilities. And I interviewed, in the first two years, I interviewed the CEO of Georgia Power who impressed me. And he had a great vision and I thought he was a fine person. I was impressed with him and his acumen as a business person, but I could tell he had a worldview that he wasn't looking to embrace risky things that might make his business better because there's 100 years of legislation in Georgia that says, don't do that don't take risks. And so he was doing a wonderful job for the things he was being asked to do by his legislator and by his public utility commission. And I became despondent because I was like, how can you innovate rapidly? How can you get venture investors to join an industry where it's going to take 20 years to get a return and they have to spend two thirds of the money working with lobbyists and lawyers to get things through the regulatory process. And that's when I stumbled into local energy and I realized at first, I was dismissive of rooftop solar because it's, it's, it still is a fragmented, relatively inefficient industry. But what I realized was those people could move on any axis they wanted. They could buy this solar panel, or yeah. they could do solar tiles, or they could buy a microinverter or a, a string inverter. They could create software. Tesla makes Powerwall batteries that have gorgeous user interfaces. They could do anything. And all of a sudden, there was a competitive market. And I started to see, and I 
at that time, it was the very beginnings of Powerwall still hadn't shipped, but I was starting to see, wasn't just, here's some stuff we would like to sell to utility, to a to utility, but you can buy it too for your roof. It started, people started saying, this is commercial and industrial, community scale solar. These are independent markets for where competition is actually happening. And then I got excited. And then I realized that's where the innovation is gonna come in. And then I realized that's exactly what happened to computers. That's exactly what happened to media. That's exactly what happened to every other disruption. And if you read my favorite book in the world, Innovator's Dilemma from Clayton Christensen, that the last two words in the title of my book from the outside in, IBM and the other large companies were happily making their mainframes and selling them for what would be 10 or $20 million a day. And a bunch of hygiene optional kids in garages in Silicon Valley with greasy hair and soldering irons created what is today the dominant model for computing. And we're going to see those same kids in garages making systems for homes and villages in Africa and schools in Puerto Rico. And that kind of innovation is getting unleashed as we speak, Nico. That's what's happening now. And that's what I'm excited about. That's entirely what the book's about. See, I got excited about it because this is like my religion. I love it. I love it. Bill, along lines of the abundance of energy available, there's never before in history been a time where there were so many options to consumers and at such a scale and price, to your point, the Powerwall being at the higher end, there's so many options for consumers. You use this term consumerization when you discuss the rise of local energy. Can you help me understand how that fits in the picture in terms of scale and accessibility of this power and this technology? When I was thinking of the term consumerization, which is a term I've heard through my career, I think back to this, we were looking for a house in Raleigh a million years ago when I was a kid, and the realtor was driving us around. She had a little telephone with a handset in her car. This would have been in the 80s, maybe the late 70s. And she could pick it up, and she would talk to someone and say what number she wanted to dial. And this was mobile phones. Yeah. And only a very few people. You remember the Gordon Gecko, that big gray phone, right? There was only a couple 10,000 of those made. and. (laughs) <laughs> what happened ultimately was because of economies of volume, because of mass production, microcomputers, mobile phones, these all became widely available and affordable to everyone. And they also became easier and easier to use. Yeah. And so that concept of consumerization plays out in virtually every single technology market. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be a surprise to people that it's going to play out with solar and battery and local energy too. They're going to wake up and say, wait a minute, how did this become so mainstream? But I would argue that consumerization makes that an inevitability. Mm. Yeah, I think as someone who's been in the industry for a long time who both has sold to residential solar installers and and developed a large-scale utility, there's this implicit understanding uh, on the street, Wall Street, as well as in a lot of academia that, and I think it's a misunderstanding that large-scale solar in particular is the way to go. And it really, in many ways, feeds to this economies of scale idea that the centralized grid was built around. But you have a quote, in the age of digital technology and low-cost renewables, the rationale for a grid built exclusively on economies of scale is outdated. Can you expand on that? When Sam Insel came up with regulated monopolies, the idea was, and it was axiomatic. It was a truth. No one disputed it. And at the time it was true. The larger we can make a power plant, Mm -hmm. the less expensive each marginal kilowatt hour will be. So let's take away competition so we can put all of our capital to a single large power plant in a region and make it as big as possible to drive the price down. It was totally true and absolutely accurate, but it turns out that you can only make things so big and then you start to have 
counter effects that undermine it. And there is no better example than nuclear power plants. Why is it the last couple of nuclear power plants have been so over budget and so long? Because they're unbelievably complicated. And so what happens for years, the utility industry is built on economies of scale, but ultimately it failed them because the projects became too complicated, yeah. too large, too much project management, too complex a supply chain. And it ended up becoming too expensive to make ever larger plants. And that's where we are today. Peter Fox Penner, one of my favorite thinkers in this space in his book, Smart Power, points out that I think it was around 2003 or six when the we peaked in terms of average power plant size at about 500 megawatts. And ever since then, it's been shrinking again. So the age of giant power plants is behind us. Bill, I'm curious to hear if there were specific and perhaps surprising advantages that you found over larger systems as you explored the idea of local energy. The more I got into this thesis, which became the entirety of the book, the more I was surprised and excited that this notion of small-scale systems, which includes mm -hmm. rooftop solar, commercial solar, industrial, community solar, these systems that aren't utility scale, the more I realized what a great idea it was. Yeah. And today they're seen, these small-scale systems are like the kids' table at Thanksgiving. Yeah. They, oh, isn't that nice? And let's make sure. <laughs> right. And it was, it was captured really brilliantly by a utility executive who I will not name, but took the time to educate me on how the world worked. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm all for environmentalist bill. And if these people want to put solar on the roof and it makes them feel good, then we're happy to have some people do that. But the truth is I'm a dollars and cents kind of guy and you put a pencil to it and it's always going to be cheaper to build these large scale systems. Mm. And so in chapter three, I really explore all the benefits of local energy, starting with this cost theory. Even people that put up residential solar will look at you without thinking twice and saying, well, of course, it's cheaper to put up utility scale, but it isn't. Yeah. It's not even close. What this, this utility guy says to me is he says, listen, we can put up a utility scale for, for two or three cents, and it's going to be five or eight cents for you, LCOE. Right. And I said, it's cheaper for you, but it's not cheaper for me. I said, if you put up a giant utility scale system for two or three cents or whatever you pay for it, is my electric bill going to go down? No, not at all. Maybe in a long term, maybe, once you close down your coal plants and everything else. But yeah. for the near term, my electricity bill is not affected at all. But if I put solar on my roof, it's instantly cheaper for me. And so this argument that has people have allowed to sit out there is just ridiculous and broken, which is it's cheaper to build utility scale. It's cheaper for the utilities. And that gets me back to this whole notion of why local energy is so important, because even the mindset of the advocates for small-scale solar continues to be stuck in the large-scale mentality. What's good for utilities? It's going to save the utility money to do it, so that's got to be the right answer. But when Sam Insel put together this original, he brokered this regulated monopoly deal with the government, the thesis was, they called it a social compact. We're going to let you get away with murder from a business point of view. <laughs> right but you're gonna to promise to put customers at the center of your universe. Yeah. And that has been forgotten, that has been lost. And so when we think about what's best for customers, for you, Nico, for me, and people who live in apartments that can get community, they should have access to the cheapest for them. Yeah. So the question isn't what's cheapest for the utility, that's the wrong question. Hmm. John Farrell, who I quote in the book, and I'm a big fan of the yeah. ILSR, says that it's a false question because they compete in completely different markets, mm -hmm. small-scale solar and large-scale solar. So then if you dig in on small-scale solar, local energy, as I call it, which also includes batteries, people ask me, how come I don't just use the industry term like DER or <laughs> distributed generation or behind the meter? 
And I have this little section in the book where I say, all these people that have come up with these words, that speaks to them as an audience. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, utilities call it uh, grid defection and installers call it behind the meter. But these a group of people that don't have a word because no one represents them. That's the customer, that, right. what the utilities lovingly call the ratepayer, <laughs> And that's who you and I are to the utilities and yeah. to the regulators, we're the ratepayers. Our job is to write checks. And they've forgotten that we are customers in the yeah. end. And so when you start to think about who's ultimately benefiting from this, it is the customer, it's you and me, and they need a word. And I gave them that word, local energy. And the great thing about local energy is it's so much more than just another way to generate solar. Yeah. Comparing it on a price to price basis, even with my previous argument, it still misses the point. If I build solar on my roof or on my office complex and I add batteries to it, I'm getting a degree of resiliency that cannot be matched. In many cases, in more and more cases, it's the least expensive way I can generate electricity for my office or my home. One thing I love about it is that in many cases, and I think frankly, going forward, more and more cases that when someone comes on my roof or your office roof to build that solar, there's a very good chance they live in your community. Mm -hmm. And the money that I pay as labor will go towards their, them paying taxes, which is gonna be my police force and my school and my parks. Right. That money stays in the community. There's some yeah. studies that say that up to 25% of the money we're doing rooftop or commercial solar stays within the community. Yeah. But if I put a 50 megawatt solar plant out in some deep desert or rural part of yeah. the state or the country, that's some of that money's gonna be there. But in many cases, people are driving in and staying on site. Flying to build in. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that, and then when you have that community centered, I think of it farm to table for electrons. Mm. Oh my goodness, that's great. And so when you have that community centricity, all of a sudden you have a tool to address energy equity that doesn't require massive politics and legislation and arguments among advocates. You just say, I'm going to put, so I'm gonna find a way to help you finance community solar access or rooftop solar access, because in the end, your electric bills are gonna go down, but you go to people, low-income areas in a community, and you say, we're gonna help you finance this. The government could do it. There's tons of startups and, yeah. and advocacy groups. And all of a sudden, their electricity bills, bills go down. There's a story when Texas, um, when Louisiana went offline because of Hurricane Ida, and there was a, a low-income housing that had solar on the roof, and all the people that lived there, all the rich people around them had no power this low-income housing community, all their lights were working and their stoves were working. And so the arguments about low-income cost shifting and all that, they're just mirages. Yeah. They're, they're problems to be solved, but they're not intractable things that should stop us from installing local-scale solar and batteries as fast as we can. I have 18 benefits listed in the book. Yeah. And so it's, uh, I think people need to get their head around that it is different than utility scale, but if you take a second look the benefits of local energy almost immediately start to outweigh the traditional thinking that big is always better. Yeah. One of the things that is not readily apparent for consumers because they just don't understand how the grid works is the health, the relative health of our ability to utilize the existing infrastructure. We just passed the you know, trillion dollar infrastructure bill. We've got the bill back better. Uh, a lot of money is going to be going at infrastructure. And there's going to be a lot of money thrown at transmission, but the ability to strengthen at a local level the negative need for local transmission infrastructure build out or, or improvement, or rather higher capacity, long haul generation uh, and transmission infrastructure, 
is lost on most consumers because they're treated like ratepayers, and ultimately those costs get rate-based, which means you have to pay for them anyway, even if it's a transmission line between Oklahoma and, and, and Texas or wherever it might be. And that's part of one of the things that you say about stabilizing the grid. It's one of the 18 areas. I want to dig into something that is, I think, in the zeitgeist right now. Everyone is talking about the example that you used in, I think, chapter one of Puerto Rico, effectively, Sonova added batteries to everything they did moving forward. Their new thesis is, we don't do solar without batteries. Abby Hopper declared at Solar Power International 2019 that we are entering the solar plus decade. And the plus is generally accepted as storage attachment rates are skyrocketing. But you say something that, for me, is counterintuitive because residential storage is more expensive on a pound for pound, it would seem, than utility scale, grid storage, you say it makes batteries more valuable. Help me understand how local energy makes batteries more valuable. When you think about the introduction of batteries into the electric system, grid, local, whatever, I talk to utility folks and I say, you've been running a system using arithmetic. Batteries are going to make a calculus. Mm. Batteries are so much more complex to manage from a utility or residential point of view because they can do so many things simultaneously. So instead of just delivering a kilowatt hour, they can provide resiliency, they can provide grid stabilization. So batteries change the entire economics. And RMI has a study that I think really nailed it. And they looked at all the places you could put a battery at grid scale or in a distribution sort of the grid at a substation, or you could put it next to a solar farm or wherever you put it. And I think they would, we would all say that, hey, listen, there is any place you put a battery, the grid's better. But their analysis was the best, most valuable place to put a battery was as close to the point of consumption of electricity as possible. And therefore, the more local a battery, not to say they shouldn't put it in other places, to be clear, but the, if you had a choice of putting uh, 100,000 uh, kilowatt hours of batteries where would you put it? They would yeah. argue, and I agree with them, is the best place is behind the meter. Yeah. Because primarily, first and foremost, for resiliency. Let me illustrate why resiliency matters. For those of us that live in suburban, high-end neighborhoods, it's an inconvenience if you lose power for a few hours. It's even got a romantic element to mm-hmm. it, right? If you lose it for a day or two, many people have experienced that. It becomes a hassle. Yeah. How are you going to charge your phone? You can't watch your TV. You lose it for a week, it becomes really inconvenient. But what happens is if you lose power for a few weeks and it goes on to months, it becomes incredibly debilitating, even fatal. And so that's why my book opens up with this story about a school in Puerto Rico yeah. when Hurricane Maria came through there. And it, it was this is a, one of the least wealthy parts of Puerto Rico up in the mountains in an area called Naranjito. And the hurricane wiped out the grid for that area and the school was closed for three or four months. And okay, that's it seems a shame and you could read about that statistic. Mm-hmm. But the downstream effect of that was really powerful. Uh, by the way, why can't a school open without power? I mean, that seems okay, just have the kids go in there without electricity. That particular, there was many reasons, but that particular school, I never would have imagined it. But like most of the places in rural Puerto Rico, it's mountainous. Yeah. And there are no toilets to be flushed without pumps. Right. So quite literally, uh, they couldn't open the school because the first reason was because they couldn't flush the toilets. No sanitation. Yeah. And the second reason was that in Puerto Rico, the kids rely on food at lunchtime. And so they had no way to keep the food that they're supposed to be offering the kids without a refrigerator running. So for those two reasons, the school shut down and the impact on the community was, 
I talked to these people. It was really terrible. Yeah. If, for example, people who struggle financially, they now had young children at home and they couldn't go to work. Yeah. So they literally quit their jobs. And then what income they had, which was already struggling because the island's economy went to nothing. They had absolutely needed electricity. Mm. So the neighbors would maybe own, had there be a generator shared between the uh, neighbors and the price of diesel was through the roof because it wasn't available. But that, and that was a bare minimum of electricity. The, the downstream effects of not having this school operational just hammered the families. A lot of them moved away, which is another, they literally moved off of the island to find lives right. elsewhere because they had no path forward. Now that school has a microgrid, which is why people should read the book and how much it positively transformed that school and so totally. many others in Puerto Rico. It's a really uplifting story. And oh, guess what? Their electricity bills went down. down. So all these social benefits, great, check. But their electricity bills went down. And it reminds me of something I finished in the final part of the book. I heard a story about a guy who went to a, to a well-to-do school. And he said to the, the principal of the school, he said, we're going to donate. We're going to get the parents together. We're going to donate a solar system uh, for you guys at the school so we can be green. Check the box. Be green. And she said, no, I, I don't have time. And they said, no, we're just going to pay for it. And then your electricity bills are going to go down. You don't have to finance. You don't have to do anything. And she goes, no, no. And, and the story I heard was that she just didn't believe that you could have all these benefits without some massive hidden issue. Yeah. There's a gotcha there somewhere. I can't just have this thing put up for free by my donors and then have my electricity go down. Something is yeah. going to catch me, and I'm going to catch flack because I didn't look into it. So I'm going to look at this another year. Yeah. People just don't believe that it's as simple as put the solar battery system on the Puerto Rican school, and everything that comes out of it is good. No downsides. Just yeah. Don't believe it. Are you still trying to rely on Excel spreadsheets for the financial analysis of your solar and energy storage projects? Energy Toolbase is your savior. ETB developer sales and modeling platform helps developers streamline the sales process and close more deals by providing an intuitive project modeling process that precisely calculates utility costs, energy savings, and project economics in a transparent and defensible way. With the industry's only in-house utility rates team constantly tracking and updating their database of more than 70,000 rates, you can ensure the utmost accuracy. And finally, you'll communicate your company's value proposition to your customers with fully customizable proposals and document templates. Close more deals. That's why we're here, folks. Go test drive the industry's solar and storage modeling platform of choice. Use the code SUNCAST and get a 30-day extended free trial energytoolbase.com or click on any of the toolbase logos at mysuncast.com. You've been a, an incredible proponent and, and even a donor through through various partners to the test bed, the proof case of island nations and small remote communities being becoming self-sufficient through microgrids. And that's one of the things that I think comes comes out clearly in the book. And I would encourage anyone who's thinking about and is and becomes passionate about the idea of social equity uh, and stability and even less dare I say you know, personal freedom choice mm -hmm. you can use what's happened not just in Puerto Rico but in Hawaii we'll just use two principalities effectively of the United States right one a formal state one an, a territory that are themselves self-contained islands that are supported by our government dollars and in, and in many ways are the test bed for how resilience looks for the rest of the world in 2030. Yes. Because Hawaii's there in many ways. 
I write about Hawaii a lot in the book yeah. because they, the term, I didn't make it up, and it's so appropriate, is it's a postcard from our clean energy future. <laughs> and the number of innovations at a policy level that Hawaii has cranked out just during the window of my yeah. writing the book. And I actually went back and, and went back to the finished manuscript to add in mm. the latest thing that Hawaii just did about three months ago, yeah. which is paying, I believe it's $850 per kilowatt hour of battery that you put in your house. Whoa. And just in one last time week, fee. Yeah, yeah, they just write you. So if you put a five kilowatt that's hour, that's like the, the S chip from California, it's circa 2005. And it, it basically pays for it. That's or amazing. It pays for half of it. And then they just announced uh, a new program to put up, I think it was 50,000 solar battery systems <clears throat> led by the state government and the utility. And so Hawaii has a unique situation in that electricity is expensive mm. and they have a lot of sunlight. But as the price of solar and batteries go down, yeah. the same economic benefits that Hawaii leads with are going to be available to everybody. Right. So if you want to understand how to set policy, you mm -hmm. want to understand how to build a grid that can handle lots of distributed generation, yeah. you just look to Hawaii. They're doing it now. Yeah, and lest we think that Hawaii is a special case, you have to look no further than the great state of Texas and the energy debacle of February of 2021. <laughs> and there are no end of podcasts evaluating what happened there, you had several conversations that, that sort of look into the depths there. But folks, if you just go to Twitter, you'll see countless examples of the only folks that had neighborhood warming parties and cooking food for neighbors were the folks that had not just solar, but batteries. Yes. And in some cases, we'll talk about this towards the end, because I think that vehicles are grid and, and our rolling batteries are going to play a big part in the transition. But absolutely. The, the Ford couldn't have asked for a better marketing uh, tool than the Texas blackout. For the, for the Ford Lightning announcement. Correct. Yeah. The number of Ford Lightning tweets that came out of literally folks using a truck to power their home, Re like reversing a trend that we've seen from other incumbent electric vehicles that you shouldn't use it as a power backup. So we'll get into that in a minute. But I wanted to just put a pin in how local energy is much bigger than just what many of us think about of, oh, of the major residential solar installers making a buck off of, of marketing from Elon and others. It is a revolution of how our appliances work for us and rethinking a disruption of the way that we generate and consume electricity as a society. You know, you said something about Texas, and I just want to point it out because mm -hmm. this is a real sticking point with me. When I started researching this book, I was shocked how little analysis there was. And mm. so let's, I mean, talk about Texas for just a minute. So all these talking heads are saying the wind turbines froze and that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Or no, it's the natural gas things froze. Who was the real culprit when the, everything got cold, what went wrong? So I was trying to read all these things and make sense of it. Then it reminded me of the same way I did so many other things in the book. I said, well, let me just go get the data. Turns out ERCOT, who's the group that runs Texas's grid, publishes the minute-by-minute -minute data on every single thing. Mm. So I just downloaded a couple hundred thousand data points, and I just did a little graph, and I compared it to previous years. And, and I wrote an article on it. It was probably one of the most commented articles I've gotten. And it was just couldn't be more clear. And that you know, solar actually outperformed against the norm. Wind fell somewhat relative to its typical target, but this time of year, wind is already running very low anyway. Uh, and the huge drop, without any close second was natural gas. Yeah. And so for people that argue this, and it drives me crazy, quit, get out of the religious discussions and the ideological stuff and just look at the data. The data is so clear, it's public. 
it's just, it's not easy to do and it's not convenient and fun to go through the data. But what I try to do in the book, especially with the myth busting stuff, is just look at the data. Yeah. It's not hard if you look at the data. Bill, I'd love to hear what was the most surprising insight that you gleaned from really turning the industry inside out and looking for where disruption exists? Great question. Cool. Spot on. I think that the biggest positive surprise in writing the book, there was a lot of negative ones. How bad coal is. I had some, my concerns about nuclear got larger, but the most positive surprise was an article I read years ago. And it just used the phrase that solar is a technology, not a fuel. Mm. And I have gotten more feedback on that phrase and on my writing and podcasting and, and hopefully in the book than any other idea put out there. And it, it's so deep and powerful. And it's one of those things you can contemplate for hours and think about the ramifications. But you're talking about an industry for 100 years that has been built exclusively on the back of fuels. Utilities had or departments that did nothing but predict fuel volatility so they could price the fuel and hedge it. Fuels were the, the largest cost that they could vary in utilities. Yeah, And the business model of fuels, extraction, mining, distribution, waste dealing with, that's an entire life cycle. In one fell swoop, the industry's changing, as Jim Rogers prophesied, it's becoming a technology business. Mm. And technology operates under an entirely different economic dynamic than fuels. It's, it couldn't be more different. So in the space of 10 or 20 years, we're going to go from an industry built entirely on a fuel economic cycle to a technology economic cycle. Mm. And that is going to be wildly disruptive. And so you go from a business where you're looking at how much is uh, coal going to cost, how much is natural gas going to cost, let me speculate. Let me think about the world order. Let me think about Saudi Arabia and China, all these really interesting questions. And you're going to go to it. The price of solar cells has dropped 10 to 15% per year for the last 40 years straight. How long is that going to continue? It's going to continue. Mm -hmm. And nobody anywhere who plans the grid is using that actively. In fact, the Energy Information Administration in the US and their counterpart, the IEA in Europe, have famously been so wrong every single mm -hmm. time they predicted. And I have some numbers in the book about, you know, they said it's going to be 12 years before we get to some level of solar. We did it in, in a year. And they are wrong year after year. I have a graph. They're year after year after year after. They're finally, they're finally getting it right because they've, it took them well over a decade to understand the difference between fuels and technologies. And that's an example of how hard it is. Even people that think about these trends every single day, that's their job. It took them over a decade and so imagine people that own these assets, these fuel-based assets, how difficult it's going to be for them to get their head around what this means to being a technology, let alone making the business decisions as they switch from a fuel ec economic cycle to a technology economic cycle. But this is the disruption, Nico. This is the heart of the disruption. And that's why outside in is so relevant because there are people, the whole tech industry, I've been in tech for 20, 30 years, and I know that if I have a server that's going to do X, I know for sure that in two years, I'm going to buy an upgrade to that server that's going to do X times two, and it's going to cost me X divided by two to buy it. And every single thing we did in technology for decades, if you don't buy an iPhone today and you wait a year, that new iPhone in one year is going to be a lot better. It's yeah. going to have a better camera. It's going to have more memory. You don't even think twice about that as right. a consumer. There is no precedent for that thinking in the energy industry. Zero. Even wind, which is more of a machine than a technology, but it has technology dimensions to mm, it. Right. And I believe that the people who have experienced technology industries, telecommunications, media, software, hardware, 
I think they're going to have an outsized opportunity. Their everyday thinking is the way the energy industry is going to have to think in the next 10 years. Bill, we've talked a little bit about, in, in some cases, I, I would say the utilities right now are fish out of water. They are gasping for breath. They're trying to figure out where they fit in this new economy. You often refer to Clayton Christensen and the innovator's dilemma. A quote from that book resonates, I think, in this scenario, and I'd like to hear how you think it applies for the utilities specifically. He says, the reason is that, and he's pointing to the reason for failure, the reason is that good management itself was not the root cause. Managers played the game the way it was supposed to be played. The very decision-making and resource allocation processes that are key to the success of established companies are the very processes that reject disruptive technologies. Listening to customers, tracking competitors' actions carefully, investing resources to design and build higher performance and higher quality products that yield greater profit. These are the reasons why great firms stumbled or failed when confronted with disruptive technological change. I found a quote and I put it in the book and it basically said that it's very hard to convince a man uh, to change his mind about something when doing so takes money out of his wallet. And, and that is the heart of disruptions. People have economic incentives to continue doing what's worked for them. And that's why Clayton Christensen's book is so profound because he mapped out why companies are incredibly successful with their customers who are doing a magnificent job of meeting their customers' needs are also the most likely to be disrupted by outside forces. And I saw this at IBM when I worked there. These gigantic customers that are paying IBM tens of millions of dollars a year. Yeah. And they love the fact they get all the different products, hardware, software, services, mm -hmm. all from one company. And they come back to IBM year after year and saying, we like the breadth of things that you do. And we're happy to pay a premium to have one company to do it all. And that is IBM's business. The problem is that those same customers in the future years are going to probably shift into things like cloud computing, like Amazon's introduced. But day to day, they really love what IBM does. And this is what Clayton Christensen uncovered and shared, which is that if you do the thing that you're supposed to do for your customers, listen to them and deliver what they want, you are likely to get disrupted if you're anywhere near a technology business because technologies will change. Outsiders will come in and they will offer something that you would almost have to put yourself out of business to compete with. And there's all kinds of prescriptions in his book, but how to navigate that as an incumbent. Hmm. But that applies to industries from steam shovels to uh, hard drives in his book. But every one of those industries had opportunities to be innovative in the end mm. that the utilities do not because all of them were legally allowed to innovate if they chose to. Oh, yeah. And they most chose not to, uh, which is why almost no steam shovel companies ended up being in the, the giant hydraulic bucket business. Right. But they could have. Mm. In the utility industry, they are in many ways legally bound to the business model and the incremental decisions they make today. So it's not just that the utilities, I, I, when I was writing this book, Nico, a lot of people I interviewed wanted to make the utilities to be the bad guys. And there are so many books where the utilities right. are painted as this obstructionist to the future. But if you sit down and look at it, I have a great fun interview in the book about a public utility commissioner named uh, Bubba McDonald that I interviewed, and I've interviewed many others that didn't mm -hmm. make the book. And they're doing what the legislators are telling them to do, and they're telling the utilities what to do. And even if you had a utility that wanted to be really innovative and take risks, they have to convince even more conservative, not politically conservative, but risk-averse utility regulators to, to follow along. And that's a tough. So utilities have all kinds of reasons 
to continue on what they've been doing for 100 years. Yeah. And a lot of resistance to change, which is why most of the change is gonna come from the outside in. And I think many utilities will finally see it and your regulators will see it and they'll get on board, but many will fight it to the end. Yeah. That's amazing. Bill, I love that as a creative leader technologist who's seen a breadth of technological application that most of us would dream of, you've already been able to establish that you can learn an industry by researching it well and building based on first principles frameworks of thinking that not only guide your own sense of direction when you approach that new industry, but have served and will serve others who are trying to find that direction. I find that with writers such as yourself, there's a trend or a tendency towards creating bespoke models that help to convey the narrative and also creating words that uh, are helpful for folks to sort of attach to. You used a word, we've referred to a couple of times, Solyndra here, and you used the word cleanpocalypse to kind of refer to the, the Solyndra period, right? A few years where venture invested billions of dollars and observers effectively concluded that clean tech wasn't a fit for venture capital. Yet, you saw more than 3,000 deals at Greylock. You bought dozens of companies in your history as a CEO. And for those who read the book, chapters five and six for me kind of represent the distillation of that entrepreneurial mindset. Help me understand the need for creating a new framework within which we can package the scale the end and and the roots and the branches of this of the growth of this industry and you call them orders so er, early on i reached out to a lot of venture capitalists through my network having been in that industry who had focused on clean tech and the clean apocalypse was this was in 2017 and it was still hanging there like a car wreck mm. in, in the near in, right next to them and they felt they were pioneers because everyone was telling them clean energy was a terrible idea and why were they still doing it? Had me mm -hmm. learn a lesson. I even had friends of mine from venture capital saying, dude, why are you doing clean energy? There's so many things <laughs> if you want to be an investor or write about an industry, why clean energy, clean apocalypse blew up. It's not a good place for venture capital. And as I talked to some of the people that were actively investing in the industry, I found that there was a lack of clarity on how to think about the way that capital flows into these companies. And so I started thinking, there, I looked everywhere. Who's got a simple model to describe the, the myriad of ways that you can actually, the way the capital flows through different segments of the industry. So if you're an installer, your capital flows are largely around labor and soft services. If you're making solar cells in China, your capital is entirely about building a huge factory and hoping in three to five years, the standards don't change so you can get your money back. I didn't see anybody clarifying these differences. So I came up with, and this has been a professional strategist at IBM and mm. worked briefly at McKinsey and did this at the company I ran called IXL, put some formal strategy to it. And I came up with this thing called the five orders, which to a person who's a professional strategist, they're going to yawn and say, okay, sure, fine. But I've been really pleasantly surprised the number of people who have read this and say, that's a really cool idea. And so it's, I can just tell you, it's standard business strategy applied in the context of clean energy. Mm -hmm. For the strategy people there, it's simply a value chain. I'm going to pause you for a second because there are folks here listening right now who I want to make sure you're running and you're distracted. Pay attention because <laughs> you also are an adjunct professor or a weekend professor 
at a university or you're a college student, and this is going to benefit you greatly. So just pay attention right now. In many industries, the value chain isn't really clear, especially in the tech software space, but it's actually much more clear in clean energy, particularly at this point in time. And so the orders are basically the steps through the value chain. And I, in my own mind, think of them as, as layers on a pyramid, mm. although it's layers on a, a, a vertical rectangle. And just in brief, the, the first order is when you make stuff, it's components, mm. solar cells, batteries. Second order is when you, you tie them together, it's integrations. And yeah. this is one that I wanted to really highlight. I highlighted earlier because people don't give this a lot of credit. This is actually where I think the most exciting products are going to come, taking yeah. existing stuff off the shelf and putting it together yeah. like Tesla did with the Model S, we Thomas were, Edison did with the grid. Yeah, we referred to it earlier. That's second is, order, yeah. right? But then you have a new product. But then if that product's turned into a service, that becomes a third order. So if you buy a home and you rent it out, that you've turned it into a third order business. So the grid is the, one of the biggest third order businesses in the world. They put all these assets in, they integrate all these components and they sell it to us a kilowatt hour at a time. That's a third order. Now we're getting to the point, everything up to this point has been traditional asset intensive, capital intensive businesses. And this domain of loans and clever financing models and government policy effects, this kind of thing, tax equity. But when you start to get above the third order, is where venture capitalists start to get really interested. Yeah. So the fourth order is in the world of software, and I think increasingly in every industry, the single best business to be is the platform. So I think the ultimate original platform is a flea market. <laughs> you pay $20 to have a table on the yeah, weekend, you and you sell your stuff. Yeah. And sometimes you have to give them a percentage. Probably the most lucrative fourth order model is Apple's App Store, right? They do nothing other than approvals and they make a fortune yeah. and it's being fought about in law in, in courts right now about how much they can make. Yeah. But they just said, hey, Stephen Jobs said, I guess we can let third-party people put stuff on this phone. And now it's probably the most profitable thing Apple does. Yeah. And they own the platform. And that is the role that utilities, it may take decades, but they're going to figure out well, that's an incredibly sexy place. We may not make as much revenue, but our profits are going to be through the roof. We're going to be choreographing electrons. We're going to be the electron marketplace. I think that utilities are going to start in 2022 looking at some of the companies that our friends are getting funded right now, like Arcadia, and think, wait a minute, that's my business. That's yeah. my platform. And again, this is why I love business, Nico. This is why when everybody else wants to talk about sports and who got drafted and they want to talk about politics, I love, love, love talking about business models. Yeah. Among my closest friends, their heads will spin. I want to talk business models. I mean, the similarities between what the utilities will need to do compared to what AT&T did mm. when they, they used to sell long distance minutes. That was their business, right? right? And that's effectively cost zero today. So they moved to becoming a platform. And if you remember back in the old days of mobile phones, they had something called WAPDEX, yeah. which is where these numbers, and it was horrible. And they thought they were going to control the content and they couldn't. It got outside of them. This ability to become the platform is artful and difficult, well, but there's no better way to generate exciting growth. And this is what venture capitalists love. We'll stay in, in the telecom industry because I think it's important for people to think about analogs, right? What is analogous to this? And just in the telecom industry, Comcast, obviously, and AT&T, but Verizon, a lot of folks don't realize the number of businesses that are built like Boost Mobile on Verizon's yes. network. And that Verizon gets effectively like a franchise fee from. Verizon is a utility. They're a telecom utility, right? Comcast is a utility. They're an entertainment utility. Right. Who are going to be the utilities of electrons moving forward? That's what we're discussing. That's the disruption that's happening. 
man, I, I won't even get started on this because <laughs> this is my catnip. I love talking about this yeah. stuff because where Verizon has struggled, they weren't really a platform by my definition. They mm. were just making their assets available as a service to third parties. Ooh. But essentially what they were doing was a They're low a margin. Yes, they were a rental business. <laughs> and what you want to be, they struggled and missed entirely. They wanted to be Netflix. Yeah, that was. But, the, but they turned into Hertz. And they, yeah, beautiful, <laughs> exactly. You get it, right? And and they have tried with uh, various laws and cam- campaigning and things like that to try to get more control over the p- stuff that goes through their platform. But ultimately, the horses left the barn. They, mm-hmm. They're not going to get it back. So then AT and T buys HBO, and they try to get into the side door, and uh, but they're not good at it. Uh, it's not part of their culture. Mm. I watched that at IBM when we were really good at some things culturally and the whole company had the ethos of doing some things really well, but we tried to do new things like sell software services and they struggled with it because they had every bit of the company from right. how we do maintenance, how we recognize revenue, how we can send salespeople didn't fit. And Verizon and AT&T struggled to move to this new model yeah. and the utilities are going to have a struggle that's going to make AT&T look like a walk in the park because they have so much, they have so many assets they have so much legislation and regulation for them to move to this fourth order platform, which they will eventually do, but it's going to be very challenging. Yeah, And it's going to be fun watching those jurisdictions in the world where they lean into it and they actually realize that choreographing electrons as Danny Kennedy yeah. gave me that phrase. I love it. That's where the big money is going to be. That's where the big profits are going to be. Yeah. And that's where the venture capital is going to go. Mm-hmm. So the final, let me just finish the final, yeah. the final fifth order is one that's, it's really, it's a bit existential. I like to tell the story of Uber. So once upon a time, there was an app store and on it was thousands of apps. And this, this company called Uber puts an app, the thousandth and first app on the app store. And you could go there and you could call an Uber. It's a platform. <coughs> and so that was where the story could end. Yeah. But I have the statistics, numbers, and stories in the book about how Uber didn't just become a platform for car owners to monetize it, which was a phenomenal business. Right. It actually leapt into an entirely unrelated industry. And then it became a fifth order, full-on, absolute disruption. And over the course of 10 years, we watched taxi trips go down and we watched Uber trips go up. But the Uber experience was so positive and accessible, something taxis couldn't do. By the way, taxis were our regulated monopoly. That the total number of ride shares that went up was like four or five times higher than the taxi industry had ever achieved on its own. Yeah, That is a phenomenal example of disruptions. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're going to see with local energy systems participating in the electricity industry. I remember uh, to tag on to the Uber comment, I remember Jigger, who you mentioned earlier, posted on LinkedIn a couple of years ago, I will probably never buy a car again in my life. And it was around his theorizing around the business model of Uber and Lyft and what it meant for, for independent individual transportation. Because when, and in particular in a city, you have ride-hailing services, it's so much easier and elegant to, and not for everyone, of course, and that's where equity comes in, but it's easier to just jump into this 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 new outside value chain, as you put it, in the fifth order. I feel like there probably are obvious and non-obvious opportunities. What were some of the, the more non-obvious opportunities that occurred to you as you dug deeper into the big 50 opportunities that you put in the latter half of the book? There were several, holy cow, this is going to be different than anyone thinks that I came across. One of them was long duration storage in ways that people haven't thought about. Another one is hydrogen. I think hydrogen is going to be 
nothing like most pundits are telling us, mm-hmm. and it's not going to grow in the way that people think it will, but yet it's going to have a really significant impact. And I touch on it a little bit yeah. in the book, but there is one absolutely overarching, holy cow, no one sees that I call in the book, I call the Trojan horse, and that is electric vehicles for none of the reasons that people talk about it. For all the reasons they do talk about it, it's awesome. It's going to be cheaper. It's going to be way cleaner. It's going to be convenient. It's going to be the platform for autonomous driving. And we started to see a little recognition, a little faint light bulb go off when Ford announced the lightning. Mm -hmm. And you saw these pictures of your car powering your house during an outage. That's a teeny port of it. Now, think about how much battery storage is in that Ford, right? It's about 100 kilowatt hours. Okay, what does that mean? I talk about this in the book. A Powerwall, which is a residential home product from Tesla, everyone knows about it, that only has 13 kilowatt hours. Right. So the Ford has Nine. seven times more. And you've essentially, it's free mm-hmm. because you're going to buy the Ford to drive the Ford. Now, the reason that the early folks, and I talked to the people at Tesla, and they wouldn't let me be uh, quote, quote them for the book, but the yeah. reason they didn't do this early on was that early batteries could only run a couple thousand cycles in a car, right. and they didn't want to expose that to the extra things, right. the extra stuff. But as batteries go from 3,000, 4,000, 10,000 cycles mm-hmm. naturally, and that's just an inevitability of the progression of battery technology, it, the marginal cost of powering your house. So then think further than blackouts. Like every single day, the you drive your car home, and maybe your office lets you charge for free as a perk, like free coffee, yeah. and you overcharge your car and you come home and your residential batteries are draining because you don't have a very big system. Your car just charges your batteries in your house. And you still got plenty of room. I do the math in the book. Can People don't do the math. I did the math. You can drive the average US commute for one twentieth of an average car battery. Yeah. And so you could, give a, you could use that excess capacity for a million different things. And if you have a smart system managing it, which of course you're gonna have, yeah. it's gonna make sure if you have a trip coming up, it's not gonna be depleted, blah, 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 blah. This just starts the next level. If you follow, most people that have an electric car have gone and tried external charging and they realize that you're charging for how long you're connected. Right. And why is that? I wondered. Because it turns out the monopoly laws do not allow anyone to sell kilowatt hours. Mm-hmm. So all the early charging or most of the early charging with some exceptions was based on you couldn't actually literally sell a kilowatt hour to charge your car. But that's like the percentage of your gas tank. You actually want to buy it as a kilowatt hour because if you have a 60 kilowatt hour battery, you want to buy 10 kilowatt hours, five gallons. So state by state is changing the laws and saying, oh, for electric vehicle charging, we're going to remove that monopoly law. We're mm-hmm. going to open the door up and let chargers and charge by the kilowatt the hour. Trojan horse. And so that thing, which is the right thing to do. So now I go and I char- and I go to my office and I get a 10 kilowatt hour charge in my battery. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to come over to your house for, for drinks and yucking up about the industry. And I noticed that your your residential battery's down. So you Venmo me 10 bucks and I charge your residential battery for you because <laughs> it was a rainy day today and I had some excess. Then it gets really interesting. So how many vehicles come by your house every day or every week? You got Amazon, you got yeah. your pizza delivery, your neighbor stops by. You start to think about the Amazon truck driving by and maybe he, that Amazon truck's gonna stay for an extra 10 minutes because you're gonna pay him to top off your residential battery and you're gonna charge him by the kilowatt hour. You might charge it four or five or six times what you'd pay for the grid, but you don't like the grid or you have got some crazy pricing because they're trying to be punitive with your solar panels, whatever you do, this is going to create an entire industry. Just like no one could have imagined instant delivery of groceries, right? Now it's commonplace. So we're going to see delivery of electricity just like everything else. And then you start to add in autonomous vehicles because the largest cost of all delivery is labor. And so you talk about an autonomous vehicle that's got a 400 kilowatt hour battery that goes to the three houses, charges them all, goes back and recharges 
And you see this entire trillion-dollar ecosystem emerging through this tiny little loophole called electric vehicle charging. And I call it MBTH, a mobile mm-hmm. battery to home in the book. And that's just an example. I have many more that I'm not going to put in the book. But this wildly disruptive, and it's fanciful. And so I think critics and naysayers are going to say, oh, but of course this and that and the other. But if you've studied the way disruptions actually occur, if you look at how Netflix came into being, if you look at how Apple made a, a touchscreen when no one thought that would work, you look at these disruptions, it, I see these as inevitabilities. It's a question of time. And I think because these are largely platform businesses rather than largely asset businesses, I think it's going to move very quickly, 10, 15 years at the most. And, and you think about that. So all of a sudden, you say to yourself, I want to put solar and battery in my house, but I have to stay attached to the grid. And, and you do, because if mm-hmm. it rains for three or four days, your battery's depleted. And I, I, it was something in the early version of the book I took out but I was trying to say, if you have kids and they drink milk, and it's pretty important, you don't want to have a morning, because your kids are used to it, you don't want to have a morning where they don't have milk for the cereal and they come home from playing a game of sports or whatever, you give them a glass of milk. And so it's crucial to you to have milk, and you'll make a trip to go get milk. But at no time did it ever occur to you that I should build a pipe from cows to my house. I'm going to have a dedicated, because I'm so worried about not having milk, right. that I'm going to build a pipe from cows to my house so that I always have milk. But yeah, that is the only thing we can think about when it comes to electricity. Because storage, up until very recently, was so expensive. A gallon of milk in a jug is pretty easy. We get that. But there's no equivalent in storage for electricity, but there is now. So electric storage allows us to think about electricity in a completely different way. It can be in your car. Or it could be delivered to your home with your pizza. So for the first time, you actually don't have to be on the grid. And it's a fanciful idea because I'm going to predict that very few people, the grid's just damned convenient and utilities will get it. They'll make it work for you financially. But what that creates is a political power for people if they get too fed up with utilities, if the utilities are too successful, and I don't think they will be, but if they are too successful at convincing legislators to say, tell your citizens and voters that they should be paying a lot more for electricity and they should maintain that we're profitable and they should spend more money so we are. If they actually pull that off, the last card in the hand of consumers is to say, I can go off-grid entirely. I'm probably not going to do it, but I, this whole mobile battery thing allows me to actually seriously threaten you because of technology to say, I'm going to get off your grid. That's the final straw. I don't think it's going to get that far, but that's the final straw that ensures that we are going to have a decentralized local energy world. There's no stopping it. Just to be clear, we're going to need big power plants because cities are dense and factories making steel where you can't put solar on your roof to make steel. And there's a lot of reasons we need the big grid. But for the as much as 70% of the U.S. by population, they can be served very well and less expensively in the coming years from local energy. And they're going to make their voice heard. And we're going to see a grid that's going to be very balanced between small-scale systems and large-scale systems. And it's going to be fair and just and equitable for everyone involved. And utilities will still have monopolies, but it's going to be narrower and more specific to the things we absolutely need them to do, not everything they would prefer to do that's convenient for them to make the most money for their shareholders. Bill, I know I said we were going to skip policy as a category, but I think there's a really overhanging, overarching one that I want to touch on and perhaps from a slightly different angle uh, because between chapters five and six and then the end of the book, you do touch on how policy affects things and that metering, et cetera, the way that it is structured. With regards to current events, is there anything that the Biden administration or even other regulatory bodies could do that would alarm you? I'm all for the direction, totally correct direction. I would, and I'm excited to see the political will to do anything in clean mm-hmm. energy. So I don't want to in any way poo-poo it, but boy, do I wish 
that I could sit down with some of those decision makers for 10 minutes yeah. and say, listen, transmission's awesome. I think we need more transmission. Remind me how much time it is that climate scientists are saying we need to do something urgently. Right. Is that 10 years? Mm -hmm. Okay, so has anyone built transmission in under 10 years? So, yeah. So and, effectively, uh, the lack of sense of urgency is alarming. No, I think they are very urgent, but they're applying tools to solve the urgency that are not the tools that'll solve the problem. Yeah. They're only tools they're familiar with and the tools of big government and big policy. So you got two big tools that the government loves to, uh, and three really, that they're trying to pull out now. You got transmission, which is the favorite, but the, number, the problem with transmission is like making decisions in big companies. Yeah. No one can say yes and everyone can say no. Yeah. And so uh, Superpower, a great book, and about our friends, oh, yeah. Michael Skelly, about how transmission just is going to be so hard. But they just canceled a giant transmission project from Canada to, I believe it was Maine. Mm -hmm. So even if everything worked, you can't do this faster than 10 years. So if you feel urgency towards climate change, and a lot of people do, transmission is a very long-term solution to a very short-term problem. That's number one. Two is carbon capture. Absolutely invest in it. Let's figure it out. We need it. We can't just reduce emissions. We have to go negative emissions. But the likelihood that we're going to do carbon capture at scale in 10 years, first of all, you have to get the technology yeah. years away, deploy massive levels. of have to figure out how to pay for it because there's no market for carbon today. It's tiny. Now, maybe they're going to carbon tax. That'll fix that. And the third is nuclear. Right? Nuclear is a great technology in many ways. But if we did everything right with nuclear, we made uh, new scale and SMRs work immediately, we are at least 15 years away before we can do anything at scale. And you are not going to find a single commercial institution mm -hmm. is going to fund a nuclear plant going forward because of what happened with uh, the summer plant and the uh, Vogel plant in terms of overruns and cost mm -hmm. losses. So again, I applaud the government of all the world's governments in the yeah. U.S. saying, let's go nuclear, let's go nuclear. But every single thing I just mentioned falls well outside what everyone tells me is the time we need to act. And the other one is offshore wind. Right definitely let's do it. Yeah. But that's another 10 plus year from finding the access to these places, the technologies, the cost, it's very expensive yeah. today. So the answer is let's start putting utility scale solar up everywhere we can, but for goodness sake, open the floodgates on small scale solar. Yeah. Open the floodgates. Yeah. Why are we, why is there no national policy? We have a national policy, Nico, yeah. that says that anyone can put a satellite dish on the roof, regardless their homeowner association, their city council, their state, cannot override the right to put a satellite dish on a roof. Yeah. But I can only put solar on the half of my roof in my neighborhood yeah. because I'm not allowed to have it street facing. Simple, right? Simple national policy would fix that. Let's make guaranteed loans available, not just for gigantic nuclear power plants, but let's make low-income people, let's do loan guarantees and roll that out so that everyone can afford solar. There are so many simple things. And by the way, the simplest thing the government can do, I think it's in the book, actually, I don't even remember. When Bell Labs invented transistors, it was not a commercially interesting. No one wanted to buy it. So the government knew that this was critical to the nation and to the military. So the government was intentionally the buyers of the first millions and millions of transistors back. And the price of transistors plummeted in that window when the government bought it. So Rather than just saying the government's going to buy clean energy, which they're doing, they should say, we're going to buy clean local energy. Uh, we want every federal building appropriately, military base should be buying as much energy as they can generate locally. First of all, resilience in the face of wartime, resilience in the case of, of weather, and that would open the spigot. And by the way, if they would just say, there's a slight discount, and they're talking about doing this, there's a slight discount or a slight subsidy improvement if you have American-made products, the entire domestic market will take off. 
It's so simple. It doesn't cost any money. I don't think there'd be a lot of political resistance to it, except from the incumbents. So sorry, I gave you a longer answer than you asked for, but if we could get the government to step back and just take local energy seriously, just a little bit seriously, we could open the floodgates and the rate at which clean energy would be rolling out to the citizens of the United States and more broadly the world would pick up materially. And we'd be all within that 10-year window that's so critical. I'd say by any account, certainly Uncle Ken would agree that you are a convert. And like many of us, uh, you have a very optimistic view what scares you? I wrote about it in the opening of chapter seven. It's called Utilities Versus the Future. There was a shadowy group called NERA, the New England Ratepayers Association, and they've never disclosed who funded them, but they went all the way to the, the national group that oversees the grid. It's called FERC, and they made a tremendous effort to convince FERC that net metering, which is the way that most people are compensated to make their solar payback in a reasonable period of time, they wanted to basically nationalize that and in effect, remove the amount of money that consumers were paid for their excess solar and put it down to a very small number. Mm -hmm. And had that passed, it would have destroyed this growing local solar. Now, California is actually likely to do the same thing that the New York advocates wanted to have happen, which is they're going to slash the amount of money that consumers get paid for the excess solar they put back in the grid. And this is something you and I could talk for two hours about, and it's it is the most naked, yet not seen as such, but it's the most naked sort of power grab by proponents of the incumbents that I've ever seen. And even the people who advocate for local solar don't get it. Yeah. No, I've done three episodes on this. Yes, and I've listened to several of them. They're yeah, excellent. Yeah, Carl Robigo, who, who you and I both had on the show. I'm glad you brought this up, and I'd forgotten that you'd covered it in the book. We first did an episode with Solar United Neighbors because they were really mm-hmm. strong, staunch proponents to what was happening with Nira. And I would really encourage you all, there is a ton of resources, and we'll link to them, but get smart on what's happening with the attack on net energy metering because it, it's not explicitly the attack on net energy metering, but it's an attack on our rights as citizens to have the choice that we've been given and to be able to disrupt the utility model, the incumbent deregulated or the the incumbent regulated model, right? Yes. And there's this argument, again, I I don't want to go too deep on it and we've covered so much, Hmm. but there's this argument that the utility industry and their supporters call cost shifting. Oh, yes. And what it has effectively done, and I think I've got some pretty interesting takes that I've not heard or seen anywhere else, that they have effectively pitted advocates for the poor against advocates for the environment. You basically have, the utilities have their research reports they've paid people to do. And I'm sure it's well-intentioned. I don't think it's malicious or false, but they have found the math and they generalize it so people can understand it. Say, basically, if I wealthy person puts solar on my roof, then my neighbor who isn't wealthy, he or she has to pay for the grid. And therefore, they're paying more in that particularly acute for low-income families. The argument, the punchline of it is rich people have solar, poor people are paying for it. Yeah. Classic uh, false equivalence. Yeah. And the brilliance of this reminds me of the movie, The Usual Suspects. There's so many great <clears throat> quotes in that movie. Oh, yeah. But I think one of them, if I recall it, is that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince people it didn't exist. Yeah. And utilities are definitely not devils. They're wonderful people. But that metaphor is that nowhere in the argument about cost shifting is the third party, which is utilities. Yeah. 
No one's saying, gosh, we don't really, even if cost shifting, which I argue is, and I've seen some brilliant work that says it doesn't even exist, but even if we accept that it exists, it's not a question of low-income families and wealthy families. There's a third party involved, which Mm -hmm. is called utilities. And so all these legislators and public utility commissioners in California are worried about harming low-income people. There's not a single conversation. Gosh, what happens if we just reduce utility profits by half a percent? Could that fix everything? Right. That's not a conversation anybody's having. Mm-hmm. And I think if they get in, I'm sure it's been had in the rare conference sure. rooms and things, and there's some existential arguments you can make either way. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it's a public, people think this is either or, wealthy people or poor people. Yeah. And no one's saying, what about super wealthy corporations that are guaranteed profits by the government? Maybe they should have some skin in the game. Yeah. And the funny thing is, if you look at the lost money in California or the United States from solar, it's half in 2019 of the money that the utilities lost because of LED light bulbs. Mm. So the efficiency of LED light bulbs as the U.S. shifts over to those actually costs utilities about twice as much in lost revenue right. as solar panels. Wow. But you don't see utilities going to their public utility commissioners and the lobbyists and saying, you need to stop uh, LED light bulbs. We don't want them anymore because it's cost shifting. The people that put up LED light bulbs, they're pushing all this cost on the people that can't. And guess what, by the way? LED light bulbs skew just the same on the low income, high income as solar does. Yeah. Low income company, I've seen the statistics, I didn't put it in the book, but low income families tend to buy fewer LED light bulbs proportionally because it's higher upfront cost. And But no one talks about the LED cost shifting issue. The other cost shifting issue is the cost to pull power mm. miles and miles and maintain these power lines. Right. But in, in the dense city of Atlanta, where I live or outside of, it costs very little to deliver power. So those people in Atlanta are basically subsidizing cost shifting yeah. at a much, much higher level than solar panels. Wow. And so cost shifting happens all the time. This is not like the first time the utility industry is dealing with it. The reason that cost shifting and net metering matter so much is of all the things I just discussed, of all the cost shifting that actually happens every day in the utility industry, local energy is the only one where the utilities are actually losing control. Yeah, I'll make, an, I'll make a quick connection here to something you said earlier, which is our friend Andy Klump, and it's an equivalent. And this is how I really believe, going back to the original question, what scares you is that our industry writ large is under attack for all the reasons that we've outlined in this episode. And it, it, it brings to mind for me a very present example, and we don't have the breadth or scope right now to, to talk about it, but as by way of what scares us in the industry and how our industry is being attacked, we both did episodes with our friend Andy Klopp on our, on our podcasts about the WRO and how oddly the solar industry, which is a huge user of silicon, is being attacked on the, the subject of forced labor, among a few other things, and it's getting caught up in this WRO, but you don't see fair treatment, if it, as it were, across other product categories that use the same substrate. They use the same product yes. from the same places, from the same polysilicon factories. And it's a, I think it's a great example of how the idea that the solar industry gets attacked for cost shifting, but Home Depot doesn't, is a great example of Nira, just like unknown dark parties that are working their dollars against an industry that is going to massively disrupt. And the part that's so frustrating is if we ever did find out who's funding NERA, there's a very good likelihood it's the utilities or through, it's basically started with utilities. Yeah. And the the electric bill that I pay is funding. That's the irony. This is a growing idea. It's been picked up in the media really as recently as 2021. 
where people are realizing that the utility lobbying, for the most part, is being paid by the bills. And some lobbying is, is important. They need to understand there are issues with solar. We can't just go whole hog without yeah. So some of it's legitimate, but when it's very much, when it's against local energy, to me, yeah. it's this utility versus me. And I feel like having my electricity bills that I do pay, the utility, used to fund something that's not in my best interest, or right. keeping my neighbor from being less likely to have solar on her house, that to me is an issue. And I think it's going to get called out. A fun fact, one of the most fun facts in the book that people are always surprised to hear, and I cited this in several sources because it's so easy to say, Bill Gates said it once and he never cited it. I, I spent weeks tracking this down. If you look at all the U industries, SIC codes in the United States, including used car dealerships and fast food restaurants and school bus manufacturing, the lowest single industry in the United States for research and development is the utility, electric utility industry. The electric utility spends less than 0.1% of its revenue on research and development. Wow. And that's interesting by itself. Less than? Less than 0.1%. Wow. But there's another stat that I found in a completely different location and I cite it multiple ways. If you look at all the industries and all the SIC codes in the United States, for federal lobbying, utilities are the third largest federal lobbyists. So the lowest R&D and the third largest federal lobbyist. But if you stop for a moment and consider that utilities are almost entirely legislated at the state level, there's very little federal legislation affecting it. And state legislation, I learned, there's no lobby disclosure laws in most states. So it's a fairly good bet that utilities are the single largest lobbyists of any industry, simultaneously the lowest R&D of any industry. And so again, we need utilities. They're critical, but they have a system, a setup. A, they have the best deal ever. Yeah. And they are brilliant. They fund little league teams. And that's wonderful because little league teams couldn't afford uniforms if it wasn't for utilities. And I think the people that work at utilities, I've met many, they're really good people. And they believe that they're helping the communities and using the profits they get to do these things yeah. that matter. That being said, it bears examination and it, we need to be asking whether there are some ways we could tweak and improve that model that will better serve the future of the country and the world. And much more importantly, better serve the customers like you and me in the way when FDR and others struck the deal with Insul to create the regulated mm -hmm. monopolies. I don't think anyone would have been okay on the government side with the degree of one-sided power the utilities have in these discussions today. It needs to be reset slowly and carefully. You mentioned several things that essentially you know, equate to false equivalents and how the comparisons are made. And in large part, they are not just perpetrated by the utilities, but by the media that covers them and the legislators whose pockets are aligned. You and I have talked offline about the state of the media industry. We've got examples of beloved properties that now no longer exist and others that, depending on how you like your storytelling, get credibility or not. What I'd like to hear is from your perspective as a tech entrepreneur, what's missing in the way our media is covering the industry that could help us? And what from your tech or venture capitalist days might be applicable, maybe portable for, to clean tech in terms of messaging and communication, maybe even journalistic perspective? I would start by saying that the tech industry has been terrible for almost its entire life <laughs> okay. because it created so much value and didn't threaten anything yeah. until recently. And, and the market power these companies have is becoming an issue for both parties mm -hmm. politically. But prior to that, they just didn't even bother. They never showed up in Washington, D.C., and it didn't matter. So there's no good examples there. I think that most industries go through a maturation phase 
and we are at the beginning of that. Winston Churchill has a famous uh, statement that I love. Is this the end of the innovation cycle of clean energy? And he would say, this isn't the end. This isn't even the beginning of the end. This is just the end of the beginning. And mm. I think that's where we are at. So most of the companies that have been covering this industry, and, and you do a great job of this, if you're in the industry and you want to know what's happening and who's happening, what's going to affect the life of the people that are doing, especially these, these smaller scale systems, but all these solar systems, you make it personal, you make it engaging. And there's groups that report on that in a more newsy way than your audience wants to listen to, but it's a very small group. Then you go to the other extreme and you've got the mainstream media who just doesn't have a lot of experts. And right now, in the last year, they're waking up to climate. So they're all mm -hmm. coming into this discussion with a climate focus. How do we reduce CO2? That's the, that's the only thing that they'll talk about. And thank goodness, in the last couple of weeks, they've talked, started talking about methane. For goodness sake, that needs equal treatment. But that's not the story. The mm -hmm. story is there's a cheaper, better technology, and there is no media, Nico. There is no media that covers this is a business. It can It's very hard to do, but it can be distilled down to terms that people can digest. You can turn this into stories that yeah. people want to hear. And that is the reason I wrote. Why did I take, of all the things I could choose to do, why did mm. I write a book? Mm. For God's sake, why did I write a book? Right. I'm not a writer. I don't like writing. And it's because no one is saying this stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, I love Rocky Mountain Institute stuff. It's incredibly thought, data-driven. My neighbor's not going to make sense That's of right. it. That's right, yeah. And lo and behold, the people who are getting to the consumers who are actually changing minds are guys like Matt Farrell. Nothing to do with our industry, just great storytellers yes. with huge YouTube followers. Exactly. Uh, Matt Farrell undecided. Love his stuff. Yeah. So they're coming in from the, the sort of geeky, nerdy side. Yeah. If you look at all the stuff Matt covered uh, and 2-Bit Da Vinci yeah. and there's a few others, they've mm -hmm. all converged around clean energy. Yeah. This is the topic. The timing is now. Yeah. But they're still coming at it from the nerd point of view. And what I want to do, and I think you do, and together and a, hopefully a growing band of us, this is a business story. Yeah, it is. This is the front page of the Wall Street Journal. That's right. And uh, the Wall Street Journal should have stories. Uh, business insiders should have stories about this is the biggest, local energy is the biggest business opportunity mm -hmm. that no one's focused on right now. Yeah. And we need just a teeny bit of help from the government, state or local uh, or federal. And we need the people that understand the dynamics of technology, not the dynamics of fuels and assets. Yeah. You can't ignore those, but you need to understand the dynamics of it technology and come join this industry, help yeah. us. And for those journalists and reporters and researchers, join us and talk to the business dimensions of this. Yeah. That's what we need. I have one more key question that I want to ask before we wrap what has been one of the most provocative conversations I've had in a long time. I'm going to borrow from a piece that was written on Farnham Street, and it was recommended to me by the Suncast listener. So I'm happy to recommend it's an unbelievably deep blog on thought, mental models. And it, it points to the fact that we all want to know the future. In large part, what we've talked about through this entire discussion is our desire to seek answers to essentially almost unanswerable questions because we can't predict what's going to happen. We can only look at milestones. We can only try to grab analogies. And you've done a fantastic job of packaging that. But the question what's going to change in the next 10 years, it points to us trying to stay ahead of that change and be ready for it. The problem, as you pointed out with the EIA data, is that we're mostly wrong. And thankfully, we have more data so that we can remember how wrong we are and we can try to try to fix it. But the more important answer, not by my perspective, but by you know, little known icons like Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett, is a more prescient, I think, and, and present question that hopefully informs our insight around the next year, the next 18 months, the next 
36 months. And that is what's not going to change. And let's extrapolate that out over the next decade. If this is the solar plus decade, if this is the decade where local energy rules, to borrow from our friend, John, what's not going to change? There's a great saying that everyone universally overestimates what they can do in one year and underestimates what they can do in 10. One thing that's optimistic that won't change is that there is a great awakening that clean energy, not local energy, clean energy is absolutely essential. The mm -hmm. amount of money, private funding, government support that's coming into clean energy, we are seeing a tsunami of realization and interest and economic money movement towards this trend. So I think that's not going to change. Even if we have a bursting economy because it was overheated and the stock market shouldn't be this high, which some people say could happen or will happen. I think that the this horse has left the barn. Clean energy is going to be one of the most important transitions and it's nothing is going to slow it down. That's an optimistic thing. I think there's some negative things as well that won't change. I think that the vast majority of utilities are going to continue to fight this, even if they see the future clearly, but they want to slow it. So they have a chance to be relevant in it. And that's, I think, what a lot of them are doing or telling themselves. I think, unfortunately, we're going to see a continued fractious political landscape on this, at least in the United States, not mm -hmm. other countries. I think we're going to see us fighting over things that we'd actually all entirely agree on politically if we just stop long enough. Good point, and I talk about this a lot in the book, is that clean energy has got more universal bipartisan support, local energy does, and clean energy gets pulled into climate change, which is a dog whistle uh, for some. Mm. And uh, local energy is save money and uh, so I talk about how that's actually a chance for clean, another reason local energy will take off over its bigger sister and the big grid stuff. But I think in general, I sadly think we're going to continue to see tons of misinformation promoted intelligently by smart people who want to keep the conversation confusing and keep from what I think would be an obvious consensus of opinion if we could just stop long enough. And I think we're going to see continuous fractious conversations as people who want to see this happen more slowly invest great energy and intelligence and resources to continue to have it be more complicated than it is and to paint pictures that don't exist create mirages or i call it the monster under the bed yeah and i think that's unfortunately in front of us bill what's something that you've changed your mind about as a result of writing the book there were two things that are small in comparison to the scope of the book but i was really surprised about and they're just sitting there in the numbers and the data that should be common knowledge. Mm -hmm. No matter how bad everyone thinks coal is, coal is so much worse. The best thing that ever happened to coal was everyone decided it was a CO2 bad boy. Yeah, Coal is so much worse than that. Mm. And so when people talk about carbon capture with coal, it's kind of like putting a Band-Aid on mm -hmm. an artery wound. Wow. And the coal ash, and I talk a lot about this, is it's just so nasty. We just right. need to stop it. Unfortunately, it's going to stop because the economics are terrible. Yeah. That's the one thing. Then the other one that surprised me when I looked at the hard numbers and I talked to experts was I had two big surprises about nuclear. One was that all the things that we are generally scared of about nuclear actually aren't all that scary. You and I could have, as I understand it, have a, a cup full of uranium in our hand and be fine. Mm. It's not nasty. It's when it comes out the other end that it's plutonium and other things that's a problem. Yeah. But that's pretty manageable. So I actually ended up, as I researched it, being a lot more open to nuclear than I thought. But then I read paper after paper and talked to expert after expert. Nuclear is three or four times more expensive than solar. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's not intermittent. That's good. Yeah. 
but nuclear is probably more expensive today than solar plus battery, and nuclear is most certainly going to be more expensive than solar plus battery in five years. Right. And the time it takes to make nuclear. So I turn from being a little negative on nuclear to, hey, this is actually really good. It's not nearly as nasty as I thought it was to the, but as a business, it's terrible. Right. And that was the two biggest surprises. Bill, it's a tremendous effort to write a book. It's a tremendous effort to chronicle the process of writing the book the way that you did. I think several folks are going to enjoy reading the book and just feel this clearly points to that there were more interviews than this. What, what happened to all the interviews that didn't make it into the book? Some are on the site today. We've got 120 articles on the site and probably another 20 or 30 coming out for the stuff that fell on the cutting room floor that we'll be turning into articles. And I've got a very small team of people working on it with me. And I'm really excited to tell some of the stories that didn't make it into the book. The other big thing that I think people who are interested in these stories are going to hear is the I think the podcast is going to get more production, more uh, amazing guests, mm -hmm. and uh, more of my time yeah. uh, than it's had in the past. And there are so many stories yet to tell. And I think the context in which the storytelling you and I are doing is getting more dynamic Mm -hmm. There's more need now to have these stories told than ever before and yeah. more consequential to have them told. So well, I think the podcast will be another big part, maybe the biggest part of mm -hmm. the freeing energy post-book world. Yeah. Well, the book, Freeing Energy, is available December 7th. Uh, so pre-order, please, to help get the book up in the rankings. Where can folks who maybe missed it earlier, where could they best engage with you? Where do you like to be found and where can those resources be best tracked down? I spend most of my time on LinkedIn, thoughtful, long conversations, thoughtful people, not people sniping at each other, trying to be clever. So LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and I, I pay close attention to it. And the website is freeingenergy.com. Yes, yes. And we post the podcast, articles, mm -hmm. news, everything's there. Bill, I always ask a question that is at the end of the podcast. And today I think it's more prescient than ever. You've studied the heck out of this industry. You've got an amazing tome that could have been 600 plus pages and you've <laughs> distilled what many of us want to know down into a scant 420 pages. And I encourage everyone to go look into it. But for those who perhaps are just thankful that I had uh, access to ask you all these questions and, and maybe they'll never read the book. Let's end today as we always do with the bold prediction. Where do you see the market unfolding? What's in your crystal ball for the future we all have to look forward to? I'm going to answer the question a little differently than you might be expecting. Okay. I have studied the patterns of innovation, the dimensions of leadership for this industry and for my whole life. I've made a career of it. And when it comes to predicting the future, I think there is one extremely clear, simple truth. And if you walked into the lobby, the world headquarters of my company I sold to IBM called Silverpop, there on the first wall was a saying all by itself printed on the wall, which I think embodies this answer, and it's exactly why I wrote the book. The best way to predict the future is to invent it by Alan Kay. And I don't know how things will play out in the next three to 10 years. I could take a, I could hazard a guess, maybe a better than average guess. But the reason I wrote the book was not to predict the future, although I too take a few shots at it. I wrote the book to inspire somebody, 10 people, a thousand people, to be those people that create mm, yeah. and invent the future. You have to ask yourself right now with every single car manufacturer in the world chasing down electric vehicles, governments leaning into it to a degree, people predicting the end of gasoline powered cars. 
Do you really think that any of that would have happened if Elon Musk hadn't bet his fortune on on getting into Tesla mm -hmm. and making it successful, creating what some people call the greatest car ever made? Yeah. So there are patterns that strategists can predict, and I've been a professional strategist, and you can see the trends. Yeah. But history is made by voices of people. And there's a quote in the end of my book that I will get wrong, but it's by Robert F. Kennedy. And it essentially says, very few of us will ever have the opportunity to bend the arc of history, but together, collectively, we can change the world. Yeah. And very few of us will ever be Elon Musk in creating Tesla and SpaceX, but maybe someone's gonna listen to this podcast or read my book, and one day, they may not even remember it, but it'll be one of the 10 reasons they decided to do something, went on to change the world. Yeah. And if people are thinking about clean energy, particularly small-scale things, and they want to become innovators in the space, I wrote the book because it might give them a little more confidence to go to their uncle and say, no, I hear what you're saying, but let me tell you what I read. Mm. And, uh, and we were thinking about, there's so many things to do, I don't know where to start. Maybe there's some ideas here. That's why I wrote it. Mm. And if, if no one gets that, it was an amazing journey to write it. The people I met, you, others along the way, has been the greatest joy of my life. It's been the funnest adventure of anything I've ever done. But as my son Ben says, but dad, maybe someone will read it, maybe just one, and they're gonna say, I'm gonna do something different. I'm gonna take a chance on something I wouldn't have done. And uh, then it'll all have been worth it. Yeah. Well, as we covered in episode 125, the ethos of how you are now putting this to work, not waiting for the book to finish is embodied in the business name that you chose for your company, Solar Inventions. The best way to predict the future is to invent it. Bill Nussie is the career CEO with 30 plus years of experience running VC-backed tech companies, multiple exits, including IPOs. And he most recently launched Ventures aimed at accelerating the world's shift to clean energy. I hope that you crying. <laughs> wow, I didn't expect that. But his most recent accolade is a book called Freeing Energy. It's on shelves right now, and you can read it. I think you should. hope you will. I hope you'll come back and tell us your story on Suncast. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to spend this time with you. This was the longest intense conversation I've had about the book. It was the very first time I've had to talk about it in this excited way. Mm -hmm. I am honored to have your time and your voice on this story. It's an important one. And so thank you for, for letting me be a part of this and letting me tell the story. Appreciate you, Bill. Thanks for joining us on Suncast. All right, Solar Warrior. Well, that's a wrap on this in-depth look at the Freeing Energy book and project by my friend, and mentor Bill Nussie. I wanna thank Bill and Sam Easterby for the confidence and trust in me to help Sherpa this conversation and guide the discussion as we dig deep into this topic of local energy and how the energy transition can affect and impact and empower us all. And I wanna thank you, dear listener, for making the time and the intention to get through that entire conversation with us. I see you digging in as an infinite learner I know that you're eager to continue down the path and you, my fellow Philomath, can find resources and highlights from not just this discussion, but all of the discussions of Suncast over on mysuncast.com. That's where we'll link you to the social media links for Bill and his podcast, the book recommendation that we have for you today, which is in fact, 
the Freeing Energy book. Go pre-order it on Amazon. It hits the shelves on December 7th. You won't regret having this book in your catalog. And I would encourage you to think about who you could gift it to. I'm really honored that Bill gave us a chance to just dig into his story. Thank you, Bill, for taking the time to invite me down to your residence and to sit with you face to face and really get a chance to understand how and why this book needed to come to life. If this conversation inspired you, we would love to know it. Bill and I are both pretty active on LinkedIn and Twitter, and you can find our social media links there, but I'll just tell you mine's at Nico Mayo, N-I-C-O-M-E-O. Right in the description of your podcast player, you'll find links to these things as well. So I would encourage you to just go there and leave us a note. Let us know how this episode landed with you. How can we help you along your journey? There are many ways that we can do so. One of which, of course, is the mission-minded program that we launched last year to help folks through 12 weeks to find their dream job in clean energy. If you're interested in that, send me an email. We are taking applicants for the next cohort now. There are, of course, other ways that you can engage with the Suncast community at mysuncast.com. I would encourage you to explore there and reach out to me if you'd like some time to just explore how you are building your career or your company. Speaking of building companies, next week we've got a fantastic interview for you, Mr. Mitchell Samulian from Tonian Renewables. And this is one that is particularly close and special for me as it is insight into how one of our past guests ended up having a successful exit. Mitchell, his new boss, and Tonian, is the private equity-backed operations and maintenance startup that they are taking to market. Lastly, thank you so much to all of our sponsors who help make this content free to you each and every week. You can learn more about their offers at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also how you can learn ways to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like you. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.